what are you doing that's forbidden? You're saying to somebody, uh, come with me and I will say things to you that nobody else will say. For instance, in uh, Pet Cemetery, what I said was, here's something that we don't talk about. People sometimes have kids who die. There are terrible things that happen and sometimes a child will die young. And in Pet Cemetery, that happened and I followed the family through the grieving process and then the father goes out to the graveyard and digs his son up and tries to bring him back to life. And the truth that any person who's ever lost a child knows is that you wish you could bring him back to life. Podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 124, a themed episode that constitutes part one of a two part series where we browse through the horror films and many series that have been adapted from the written works of horror author Stephen King. On Horror Movie Podcast, you typically hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh and Jay. I'm a little too old to be playing Hardy Boys Meet Reverend Werewolf, but it hasn't stopped me yet. (laughs) That was a good one. Brilliant. And speaking of brilliance, we actually have uh, one of my favorite people in the world on the show tonight. And I know people think that's hyperbole, but the more you get to know this man, the more you love his gills. He is (laughs) the host of the Universal Monsters cast. He is also the host of Retro Movie Geek. We welcome the gill man, Joel Robertson. Well, thank you, Jay. I have some mighty fine slits. So <laughs> you set that one up. I'm sorry. So thank you. I'm excited to be here. I love Stephen King. I love his books. I love movies based on his books. The good, the bad. I do not care. I am excited. Well, good, because we're probably going to be doing this for the next several hours. So, so <laughs> buckle up. Since you're on the East Coast and it's already after 11 p.m. for you, I hope you are excited. As we said at the beginning of the show, this is part one of two episode series where we're going to go through the films that have been made due to Stephen King's sick mind. Um, no, we love his mind. And I want to explain the plan just so people have an idea of the scope and objective of this endeavor. And my co-hosts are welcome to throw in any clarifying things. First of all, for the first part, we'll be talking about films or miniseries, like I said. And this means we won't be discussing movies that are not Stephen King horror stories, nor will we be talking about ongoing TV series, you know, that have like a whole season, but miniseries are fair game. And we basically split everything in half from 1976, 
the year of his first film adaptation, to the present 2017, okay? But tonight, what you can expect from us is from 1976 to 1996. And then our next episode, obviously, is going to cover 97 through 2017. Splits up nicely, doesn't it? Oh, beautiful, actually, yes. (laughs) It's wonderful. And we're going to be bringing the listers four in-depth feature reviews of Stephen King film adaptations. And aside from those four, though, we'll just be briefly kind of skimming over the other movie releases because we just want to make sure the listeners are aware of everything that's out there and available to them because that's important. And then two final notes, and I'll shut up and keep on moving. Number one, we wanted to ramp up and celebrate Stephen King as we prepare for the release of The Dark Tower on August 4th. So our next episode, which is part two, that's going to culminate in our final feature review of The Dark Tower. So I hope you'll be ready for that. And then the second note, we realize, yes, that a new incarnation of It will be released very soon in September. But we're planning to review the original version of that film and the new one together, or that first half, as it were, (laughs) in a Versus episode in September. Something along those lines. So It comes in September. Did I miss anything, Doc or Wolfman? on that. I think you're good. Okay. You got it. Well, without further delay, then let's move into our Stephen King episode. And before we get to talking about the films, let's start off with a discussion about the man himself, Mr. Stephen King. Okay, guys, this is no exaggeration. I would have to attribute my horror fandom to Stephen King, probably, to be honest with you. Now, and it's not like what you're expecting. It's not like, oh, Jay was reading Stephen King books ever since he was a teenager. And so, He's nuts about Stephen King stories and all that. That's not what happened. This was like more of a hereditary, like genetic passing on. Here's what happened. My dad, who was not a big reader, he was at a yard sale one time and he saw this book called The Stand. It was 10 cents. He had no idea what it was, but it was a dime. So he bought it. He read that book and it blew him away. He passed it throughout our family and a lot of people in our family. That's their masterpiece favorite book. And he became a Stephen King nut. He was a voracious reader of strictly Stephen King stuff. Every single time he uh, released a new novel, he purchased that book. Uh, As I've said before, I've always been kind of a sheepish and scared kid. You know, even though I liked horror movies, it kind of freaked me out more than anything. And my dad would kind of talk to me about the Stephen King story. So um, in a very real way, I think that, you know, my dad was a horror fan and a fan of horror literature. And I think that that has really rubbed off on me and created Jay of the Dead, as you know him today. And so that's one thing that I I think will always be special to me about Stephen King, because, you know, it's very sentimental and reminds me of my dad. And I think maybe the last thing he read was um, The Tommyknockers, because I think that came out in 1987. But yeah, I think that's all I had to say about that. But he means a lot to me that way. What about you guys? Have you been big Stephen King readers yourselves? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and I, I actually can dovetail nicely with your point about your father's influence, because one of my earlier memories would have been around, I think it came out, the book came out in 85. I want to say it was 85 or around that time period. I know it was mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. so this would have been around 85, 86. And I can still remember looking at the cover of the book. And this is the original cover where it's the storm drain and you see that reptilian looking three, you know, three clawed fingers <laughs> coming out of the sewage. Yes. So, you know, the sewer. And 
and I just remember just the cover freaking me out. And my dad was, you know, my dad was actually a voracious reader of everything. And he was the kind of guy that at every meal was sitting there with a book in his hand and he would read these, you know, George R.R. R. Martin sized tomes, just these massive books. And, and he read them fast. There's the other thing. He was a very fast reader. So he was ripping through it. Cause that book is, it's over. It's in around a thousand pages at least. <laughs> I, I seem to remember yeah. it being in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. And, and he just ripped through it. And he, I just remember him. He wouldn't tell me everything that was in it, but he's like, he just told me, he's like, son, that is one of the scariest damn books I've ever read in my life. And, you know, for my dad to actually get freaked out by something. And so around eighth grade, I tried reading it and I was in St. Petersburg, Florida. It was a literal dark and stormy night. <laughs> I was staying at my grandmother's house and I started reading it. And I got uh, through the whole first part with Georgie. And anybody that's read it or watched the movies knows exactly what I'm talking about. And I was done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it scared me. <laughs> hell out of me and you know and i and i read a lot of his short stories and and the mist was a early novella of his that i loved and i as i got into high school or, you know misery pet cemetery of course and i remember pet cemetery the book was just i mean the movie's fantastic but the book just scared the crap out of me <laughs> and it just they were the dark half they were all just so great um actually i read the tommy knockers at that point that was tommy knockers was and actually made to this day i'm actually reading 11 because i'd watched the uh, miniseries and i really enjoyed it and uh, that that may end up being the longest book i'll have ever read but the uh, the tommy knockers up to that point was was definitely one of the longer ones uh, a little nonsensical at points but i think he's maybe admitted that he uh, may have been um chemically induced during a mm. lot of the writing of that book yes so and i've read bios about him and you know he's he he led a very interesting life and you know i i'm sure maybe some of the the movies will talk we'll touch on tonight. We'll, we'll talk about the fact that, you know, how a lot of the jobs that he had influenced those movies and, and the settings of those movies. And he, you know, he just, you know, the whole Bachman background and, and the fact that he, you know, had this pseudonym that nobody knew about. And I don't know, I just, I think I always equate him to in a way in a creative sense with Steven Spielberg. And I always felt like from my childhood, and that's probably why I, I and along with everybody else loved Stranger Things so much if you grew up in the 80s is because those two minds to me so embody I like how I, I sort of just filter all of my childhood through just all those, mm-hmm. you know, the, the nightmare visions of Stephen King and, and even some of the ones of, of Spielberg, but obviously the more whimsical, lighter stuff of his just melding together in my mind. It, it's just sort of like if, if somebody just wants to know why I am the way I am, I say, there it is. The, you know, those two guys I can always point to and say, that's, that's pretty much why I am the way I am. Right. So yeah, I, I, I totally second everything you said. And, uh, and he's, he's, he's a fantastic just storyteller. And I don't know. I, I, I it's, it's almost overwhelming when you consider not just how much he's written, yeah. but the impact of what he's written. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, I think that both of our accounts here, Joel, speak to the fact that he's um what what would the word be intergenerational i mean he's influencing generations because he's written for so long and so prolifically so yes yes absolutely so for me i am coming to king as probably the novice of the group i think i experienced what joel did in a sense despite having not read king as a child I think when we talked about A Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, and how Freddy was just everywhere in the 80s, mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. 
that's kind of how I feel about Stephen King. <laughs> there was, he was just in the ether of the eighties. And yes. I think if you were alive at that time, especially a younger kid, like I was, that was just, it was omnipresent. <laughs> and so like, I, I don't know if that's the right, correct usage of the word omnipresent. Now that I think about it, um, <laughs> but it seemed to be everywhere. I'll say that about it. And, uh, you know, I remember there was this kid named Andy who I went to elementary school with, and he was the kid with the heavy metal, you know, cassette tapes in his backpack. He, he and, was the kid from the gate. He was, he was the best friend yeah. from the gate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the Freddy Krueger t-shirts. And he and I would sit and talk horror movies or horror in general while we played tetherball uh, on the playground. And he was really into Stephen King and I was really into the universal monsters and we would kind of take turns telling each other about these things. And so his were far more terrifying in my mind than the things I had been reading. I was really obsessed with werewolves and he would tell me these insane Stephen King stories that would just give me nightmares, <laughs> but they're, I, they were all filtered through this, you know, fifth grade kid is my, <laughs> <laughs> my main recollection of all these stories. And I was familiar with a few of his movies. I remember silver bullet as a kid is one that I watched a lot uh, misery. When that, when that came out became a film, I was obsessed with the shining of course, but mostly I didn't really partake much in King until I got older. And part of that was the, through the nineties as I was really getting into cinema, like a lot of the film adaptations of his work aren't that great. And so I would try out a Stephen King movie and just think this looks like a TV movie. It looks like a, a lifetime movie. It's creepy. And I like the setting, but it's not the best filmmaking. And so it wasn't until kind of the early mid two thousands, like 2005 when I really started delving into King and I've read now several of his short stories and, and started just within the last two years reading his novels, but I'm very much a newcomer to Stephen King. You know, I love his work. I love the mood he creates. I love the sense of place in his film. I love that he has created these places like Derry and Castle Rock and, and mm -hmm. Ludlow and all, you know, where all these films take place. And I think that's so much and, and, and books take place. I think that's so much a part of what I respond to is that he's created a universe uh, where his stories take place in. And I, I really love that about it. And mm -hmm. having been obsessed with Cabot Cove as a young man, um, Castle Rock just fits nicely into kind of my <laughs> my wheelhouse. But it's like uh, Castle Rock's the less dangerous version of Cabot Cove. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cabot Cove, someone's getting killed. <laughs> <laughs> right. I well, good. I, I actually got a, a question for you here in a minute, Josh, but I'll, I'll come back to it in a second. I'd like to hear from Dr. Shock and say, uh, what are your thoughts on Stephen King? Um, well, yeah, like, like Josh was saying, I mean, as far as cinematically, he was all over the place in the eighties. I mean, there were just so many movies made about his films uh, in that decade. Uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, as many as just two, three a year. Um, and some that don't always get talked about much. I, I brought up Firestarter here before, but Children of the Corn, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the Dead Zone. Obviously, uh, he had something to do with uh, with Creepshow as well, writing the screenplay for that. So, yeah, he just had, um, he was all over the place in, in the 1980s. 
you know, uh, and I would always uh, see his films, you know, when they'd always play on cable TV and I'd always make sure I would uh, would check them out. Um, as far as uh, novels of uh, Stephen King, um, it's something I've always been a little ashamed to admit, but my third beer of the night has made me bold. So here goes. <laughs> I don't actually read fiction. Um, since the age of 15, it has been nonfiction uh, is the only thing that really interests me. Primarily books, obviously, dealing with uh, the cinema, biographies, and so forth. Um, but I also like reading history. Um, so I, I have the next Stephen King book I read will be my first. Um, <laughs> but I have seen uh, many of his, uh, as I said, I've seen many of his movies. It's just been a preference of mine. I'm, I just, I don't uh, gravitate towards um, fiction um, writing. Dave, have you read yeah. Dance, Maca Dance Macabre? Love it. Dance Macabre. No. And that's his book about, um, yes, about horror. horror movies. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You should check that out. Start I've with it. Go from I've there. I've seen writing. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I will, it's know, great. And I do, I do want to read that because I've seen some of the movies he's discussed in that. It's yeah, a great, um, yeah. I'm back yeah. to Joel. It's a great analysis of why things are scary and how it works, how yes, horror works really and is. stuff. Really is. Nice. Go ahead, Dave. Nice. Sorry. Uh, but no, that's, you know, that's pretty much it. I mean, my first experiences, and I think they were very close together, were uh, The Shining and Salem's Lot. They were my first exposure to <laughs> Stephen King, and both of them, you know, messed me up in a big way. Yeah, <laughs> they're both freaking scary movies. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So uh, what you guys are saying really resonates with me, too. Like when you talk about how pre prevalent and just pervasive Stephen King was especially through the 80s it seemed like every time I was in a grocery store you know how they have like books in grocery stores yes you'd always see the new Stephen King novel there and then the other yep. thing that's interesting because you know his stories are so potent and creative and genuinely scary uh, it, it's interesting to me how the 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 film adaptations, at least, generally speaking, a lot of them, we've talked about how they have a very TV, made-for-TV flavor, but it's also like uh -huh. the, the tone and flavor of The Twilight Zone, and I love The Twilight Zone. I'm sure, I, I would bet, I speculate that Stephen King probably loved it too, yes. and so it doesn't surprise me that, that that's prevalent in there, but I just wonder, and this is my big question for you guys, why do you think that not a lot of Stephen King film adaptations are very good? Because <laughs> given the source material and how powerful it is. Uh, I have a theory. Yeah, let's hear that. I want to hear a story. I think it's because his books are so long, mm -hmm. and I think he's really precious about his material to some degree, and I've heard that he has 100% final cut on everything since the shining. Uh, so I, I wonder if um, he doesn't love adaptations that stray too far from the source material. We also know he's written a few of the screenplays and yes. I, and I noticed that the, you know, it's, I think it's hard for any creator once you've made something to envision it another way, unless mm -hmm. someone else kind of just, takes it and does it. And I, and I see like with silver bullet that I re revisited this week, there's this completely unnecessary voiceover. There's absolutely no reason for that voiceover to be in the movie. King wrote the screenplay and every single moment that has voiceover, you could easily done on screen almost without words. And so I just think mm -hmm. 
I think for him, maybe it's hard for him to even envision this without it being kind of the way he wrote it. We know how much he disliked the shining. We saw his version of the shining to some extent later on in the nineties. I happen to like both versions, but mm-hmm. I think mean, Kubrick's version is the better film in my opinion, mm-hmm. even though it's very unfaithful to the source material. So it's tricky. And I, I think even whether or not it's, you know, related to King himself, I think just having a book that big is daunting to any screenwriter that wishes to adapt his work. And I heard David Kep, I mean, jumping ahead to secret window, he was talking about how it was actually nice because that novella being like 125 pages was easily adaptable into a movie. It was just like, boom, boom. He just kind of turned it <laughs> straight into a movie. Whereas, you know, it, for example, is so big. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's such a major challenge to tackle that in Film, which, as our friend Andrew James says, often Jason, film is a reductive medium. It, yes. it just it just is, and you know, you, it, and so uh, particularly compared to literature, it's difficult to translate that. So mm-hmm. that's my theory. Mm-hmm. Great, great points, Josh, and yep. I I think yep. that there's a lot of support to what you said because if you look, and we're going to talk about this tonight, a lot of his stories that have been adapted were actually turned into miniseries. So I think that supports what you're saying there, where they had to do it in like four hours or something rather than, you know. And and a lot of the adaptations were of short stories. Like I'm looking here, Children of the Corn was a short Mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. Um, Lawnmower uh, Man. Lawnmower Man, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, A lot of them were were, um, the boogeyman. They They were the short stories. So that seems to be where a lot of uh, filmmakers are saying, hey, like Josh was saying, it's easier to adapt those than it is these these huge novels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to hear from Matt Greenberg later, and he talks about that with his adaptation of 1408. In that case, it was almost the opposite where he had such a short um, novella. He really had to create a lot on his own. But I think that's probably even easier than knocking down that many words yeah these these works are so dense and they're the characterizations are so (laughs) detailed and Mm -hmm. i think i think it's uh, oftentimes a lot of things on paper it you know play a certain way and obviously as a writer he is constructing you know sequences and feelings just through the structure of his sentences that create a, a specific mood and feel that a lot of it just may not translate. You know, it's it's easy to say, oh, because there's so much imagination. It's so fantastical. It's you know should easily be a movie. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> you know, and and I think and I and I don't want to you know keep bringing it up because it's not horror. But eleven twenty two sixty three, if you get a chance to see that miniseries, it's on Hulu. Uh, it stars James Franco and probably, in my opinion, one of the best things I've ever seen him in. And J.J. Abrams executive produced it, and. Now that I've, I've, it may, it motivated me to want to go read the book. And now that I'm reading the book, I'm actually, as I go through the book, I'm saying to myself, okay, I see how this played out in the movie differently, but with the same ideas and, and tone and, and essentially got us to where we needed to be. But they made the right choice because people often do that. I like, go, oh, it's nothing like the book. No, it's because it's a movie. <laughs> it's not yeah. uh, books and movies are two completely different mediums. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not a it, it, honestly, my my reaction to a lot of that is I, I've gotten, I guess I'm getting old now. I don't want to argue with people about it, but there's <laughs> you know, it's really a waste of time to argue 
one not being the other because they're not going to be. And I think the reason to Josh's point about the shining, and I too love Mick Garris's miniseries. Uh, I, I think though, the reason why Kubrick's work is actually a, it's great cinematic achievement is because it doesn't follow the book. Like, like it, could have otherwise done and and i think it, it just you know takes out those key little chunks that you know it's got the key you know the, the story the elements certain character pieces but it works because kubrick's goal was not to do some perfectly faithful you know scene by scene recreation of king's book you know he wasn't going to shoot it verbatim mm-hmm. he made stanley kubrick's the shining and they are two different right. things in kubrick you know it's it's you know, at the end of the day, whether you love them or hate them, <laughs> it's sort of hard to argue at that point. I, I mean, I think it's difficult to be the fan of an author and see the books sure. you love, you know, turn into something else. For me, that's real life because I am such a fan of documentary and nonfiction. It really frustrates me when I see a film that's based on true events and quotes, supposedly, but mm-hmm. then they just take all of these artistic you know, licenses with the events. And that's frustrating for me. So I get it. I get why fans of the book would be frustrated for me. You know, when I'm thinking about nonfiction work, I like to see them stick as close to it as possible, but still tell a good story. And if it necessitates changing something for the story, that's fine, but don't go and change something for no reason. Um, You know, that's how I, that's how I usually approach it when it's based on a true story. I I would guess the most, fans of, of authors whose work are being adapted feel very similarly. You know, obviously we understand it has to be a movie, so you're going to have to change some things, but don't just go changing them willy nilly. We want to see a respect for the source material here. And that's why we're coming to see this in the first place. And so, I mean, I, I get that. I think one of the problems that we have though, is that there aren't a lot of, and I'm just, you know, no offense to all the people we're about to talk about, but I don't think there are a, a lot of great filmmakers who have tackled these films. I, you know, I think when you see a Frank Darabont or a Stanley Kubrick or even a Rob Reiner approach some of King's work, we get excellent output. But I would say that most of the filmmakers who are tackling his work are not on that level. Hmm. That's surprising, though, because wouldn't you think that a property like that you know, it seems like it might be expensive to purchase the rights and you'd think a studio might have put someone, you know, I don't know, that they, they could potentially handle the work better. Or was it was it more like, Josh, the, the, it was so expensive to purchase the rights to do this, we couldn't afford an expensive director. <laughs> like a, <laughs> Maybe. I don't know how expensive his <laughs> rights are. I mean, I know, for instance, with short filmmakers, he allows any pretty much anybody to adapt his work. Yeah, you know, the dollar the dollar babies. The, yeah, mm-hmm. the rights yeah. to them, and we're not talking about the short films, are we? <laughs> no, no, okay. no. Nah. But I believe Joel did have something to tell us about the Dollar Babies, though. Go well, ahead. Yeah, I, I just, I, I think it's fascinating. I actually found out about this. I think it was last year, the year before, for Spooky Flicks Fest. I was just looking for some bonus content, and I came across this whole Dollar Baby thing because what I was doing is I was trying to find some older short horror films that maybe we could talk about, and. I found a Children of the Corn that I had never seen before, and I found out that he had this program, for lack of a better way of putting it, called Dollar Baby Films. And the on his on the official StephenKing.com website, they define what is a dollar baby as a dollar baby is a short, not-for-profit film that has been adapted from one of Stephen's short stories. And there's an actual list. It's not all-encompassing. This does not feature every possible 
you know, short story. It's only the ones that are not basically being optioned by studios. I, I would presume uh, at this time, but I mean, there are some pretty decent ones in their survivor type, uh, you know, which deals with essentially auto cannibalism <laughs> rest stop, uh, you know, here, there be tigers. I mean, there are a lot of, of recognizable stories that are available uh, from collections like skeleton crew. And, uh, I think some night shift stuff is in there. So it, it just, it's neat that he's offering this up to student filmmakers. I think even independent filmmakers as long, you know, with the, with the caveat that you understand, you're not going to get to make any money off of this. It's for a film festival and he sends you a contract and you send him a buck <laughs> and you know, he, you, you can make uh, if, if it's agreed that, uh, you, you can do it, then, you apparently could take one of his stories and turn it into a short film. I, I, I personally think that's a pretty cool thing. I'm sure there's plenty of other authors out in the world that would never <laughs> remotely consider uh, doing <laughs> such a thing. Uh, right. So, so uh, yeah, I think it's neat. Mm-hmm. I agree that that is kind of fascinating. As I've looked over like his, uh, you know, a little bit of the history of his work and his talents. I mean, obviously he has a ton of talents. And and I wonder, I mean, I think Josh brought up an interesting point earlier about how I think it was Josh who said that writing for the screen and then writing in a book are two different things. Maybe that mm-hmm. was Joel. Sorry. Anyways. And so he was a novelist, a short story writer, a screenwriter, columnist, actor, television producer he's even done some music stuff and and so it's like at some point i mean how talented can you be in all of those realms i I mean it's it's a different animal just writing you know between a novel and a screenplay those are two different things but the guy has sold what like in the millions like i think what i read from wikipedia is like 350 million copies of 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 books and I mean that is an insane amount of success so I guess a a part of me is a little bit surprised that that he hasn't taken you know some of that and I don't know how much cut he gets but I presume he's very wealthy and and maybe had more of a a baby type of project that he adapted carefully and lovingly to the screen and maybe in his mind he has but it it just it really shocks me. I think that's what his the shows that he's executive produced are honestly I think those are kind of him doing them his way I think The Shining is a great example of that I think that was him going back and revisiting something that had been painful for him and saying this is how I wanted to see it done you know I think Mm -hmm. Rose Red is kind of that kind of a thing Storm of the Century I think was that kind of thing Mm -hmm. The Stand I think these were him saying Here's how I would like to see it done. So okay. that's my take on it. I mean, I think he's a pretty down to earth guy. My favorite credit that he has is that he, when uh, they did that series, was it nightmares and dreamscapes, Stephen King's nightmares and dreamscapes. Mm-hmm. He was a grip on that. <laughs> so oh, I think great. that's incredible. It <laughs> is down to earth. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I was, I do want to add a little thing. I think another issue comes down to people might feel very, precious about a book that they love being adapted because especially if they read it more than once you have a vision in your own mind of what the protagonists and antagonists look like you know what dairy looks like because king creates such a crystal clear word picture for you and so when someone else reads that 
and interprets it differently and or doesn't have the budget and thus completely <laughs> scraps it all together and you know does it on some back lot somewhere and it just doesn't remotely fit what you thought i i mean that's i think where a lot of the disappointment comes in is that you know certain expectation of what you have in your head and the reality not matching up to that yeah nice i i agree with you 100% on that um, and yeah because it makes a lot of sense joel because like if you read a book you know maybe parts a c and d meant a lot to you and if i were adapting it to film i might omit c and then you'd have a cow when you saw it like how could you omit that part you know that's, that that mm-hmm. was important to me but um mm-hmm. yeah it makes a lot of sense and then i think i think the case will be made to a large degree i don't you know i'm not predicting anything but i think that's at going to be a lot of people's issue with dark tower mm-hmm. just from the, your rumblings i've heard of what the plan is and what they've what they've done that that this is not your just like a straight up adaptation of the gunslinger and then we're going to move on from there this is something different and i will not be surprised at all if true devotees to that series are uh not thrilled yeah but we'll see however Maybe. i just saw i just saw a tweet from stephen king just today where he was talking about that people were confused that the movie's only 95 minutes long you know people are like wait why is the tower the dark tower only 95 minutes long and uh stephen king's tweet today said it's true the dark tower movie runs a clean 95 minutes like the first book in the series 224 pages it's all killer and no filler so Hmm. oh okay well we'll see okay little vote of confidence yeah. So yeah, and you know, and King doesn't love all of his adaptations, but I've no, seen him be not. very positive on the Dark Tower and it. So I feel good about that. Mm-hmm. I'm very hopeful. One movie that departs considerably from the book that's a failure is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Kubrick was going to make the horror movie that was going to be the benchmark horror movie, the one by which other horror movies are judged, and he didn't really know the field and he didn't take any time to educate himself in the field, so that I think that might be a failure of Ubris. And with the case of another movie like Firestarter, which was the book, literally, exactly, point to point, it is the book, I think it's a failure because it doesn't have the sparkle and the life of the novel. The movie has to capture some of the spirit of the writer's heart and, and mine. What the reader went to the book and found in love. All right, guys. So we've talked a little bit about the man himself. Shall we move into the film so we're not here yes. all night? Okay. Absolutely. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. So again, listeners, you might be a little frustrated at first with this format. We're kind of going to breeze over, but we just want to get the titles out there at least. And so, of course, the, the first one on my list here is uh, from 1976, Carrie. Based on yes. the novel, and um, anything yeah. quick to say about that, anybody? Sissy Spacek. Yes. Yeah. Sissy Spacek, and um, who was it who played the uh, the mother? Oh, Piper Laurie. Piper Laurie, and I think what's yeah. really interesting is that she played that character as if it was a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Which made it even creepier, right? Yeah, it did. Exactly. It really was very unsettling. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. and and I know that uh, our friend Wolfman Josh here is a huge Brian De Palma fan. And so, I am, yeah. And, and you, yeah. I mean, we've talked about Carrie before, right? But you um, felt like he handled the horror pretty well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a classic film, actually. It's not, um, you know, it's not his greatest work. I think it's a bit uneven at times. It's, 
he's really going all out in the way he's shooting it. And so I think um, for me, it doesn't always work, but I think ultimately some of those scenes are so memorable and so unnerving and so iconic that it's a film that will live on forever. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen a recent remake of it and, um, and we, and you and I talked about Carrie pretty recently. Um, Mm -hmm. well, I guess it wasn't that recently. It was when the remake came out. So that was (laughs) right. Back in 2013, but you know, (laughs) four years uh, ago, we did that on movie podcast weekly episode 56. If people want to search that out, that was back in October of 2013. We talked about the remake and the original, uh, for a while then. And, um, I, I thought that was a good discussion, but yeah, it's, it's hard to live up to. We've, you know, even with a good actress and a good director that we saw with this latest take on Carrie, it just, uh, can't quite live up to that original. And Jay, uh, Jay, please cut this out. If it's, too spoilery. I, I'll I'll try to be very vague, mm-hmm. but I feel, and please, one of you guys correct me if I'm wrong on this. Isn't Carrie often given attribution for being the uh, progenitor of the final jumps, the sort of pseudo fake jump scare uh, that would go on to influence certain movies like Friday the Thirteenth and yeah. some other things? Mm-hmm. Isn't that uh-huh. it's, it's known for that? Okay. Mm-hmm. That's yep. Absolutely right. Yeah, we talked about that during our Friday the Thirteenth coverage as well. Thank you, Joel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But this was King's first um, novel, and so his first adaptation. And it was not De Palma's first film, but it was kind of his first big film. So yes, uh, it was a two guys who would go on to become legends, kind of going there together, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say on this before we move on is, um, to me, Carrie is the the anti John Hughes film, which is interesting because like if you're if you like John Hughes stuff and then you watch this, it's really like a punch in the gut. And then and then I I do appreciate Chloe Moretz and her performance, but um, the reason this film is scary to me, yes. Sissy Spacek's eyes, the way yeah. she bulges yes. her eyes, freaky, oh, yeah. yeah. So that's Carrie. Um, listeners, let us know what you think in the show notes. Moving on, um, the next one I have on the list, and guys, feel free to jump in if I skip something, but would be the Salem's Lot miniseries from yeah. 1979. Yep. I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna be I'm gonna put it right up here right now. Directed by Ho- Toby Hooper. This film right here to me is the number one scariest vampire film. Period. I don't know it's of a scarier fun, yeah. vampire film. I'm serious. Really? I've been thinking about it lately. Near, it's you hard think to it, argue. You think it's more? I, mean, I guess it's creepier than say Near Dark. Yep. I don't know. I just I've got such a such a you know affection for Near Dark. I, I it's great. I love Salem's Lot. And thanks to Dave, I finally saw it. We finally covered it on Spooky Flicks Fest. But I'm just. <laughs> I mean, it, and, and, and I mean, it's creepy. It's a creepy movie. I don't yeah. know if I don't know. I have to think about that. What's your term that you say about nostalgia? What is that? Cine- awesome? C and D cinematic nostalgia disorder. It's a thing. Look it up. Oh, I kidding. believe you. It's and not. It's not. A, it's not a thing. I no, mean, I I totally believe in that <laughs> phenomenon, and I think there must be some kind of horror uh, spin on that because sure. I think if something scared you to death as a child, it sure. still scares yeah. you as an adult, and I think that's yeah, but, what happened here with this. But I think. But I watched. I watched this not long ago. My wife had never seen it before and she watched yep. it with me and she had to get up and leave because <laughs> yeah, of, of, of how scary it is she just it is she true. looked at me and she looked at me and goes this movie's evil and just got up and walked out of the room yeah. 
And, Seriously. And, and, there's, and there's a, there is a jump scare set in, uh, well, I don't want to put where it is, but there's a jump scare, and I think you all know what it is. Mm-hmm. I think I've jumped a dozen times. I know. I, 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 if I've seen it a dozen times, I've jumped a dozen times because yeah. it always gets me. But not just that. It, it's, it's it's the you know teacher look in my eyes teacher that scene the the open the open up it's me I'm your friend scene. Oh, it's creepy as hell. It is window. creepy as it's, hell. Yes, it's just Joel. from uh, you know. <laughs> Joel is sitting in a dark car right now. So uh, I, totally outside. outside <laughs> wait, 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 the windows are actually kind of fogging up because of the humidity mixing, you know, with the air conditioning and the yeah. So this is going to go well. Don't this invite them. If you hear some, them if you hear some in. scratches outside the window, just, yes. Uh, Don't invite I'll put my them. Pants and just stay here. Well, and, and just uh, so a couple more things. I'm sorry. So remember, let's remember here. This is a TV movie, right? Okay, but still, I'm 41 years old every single night, including tonight when I walk into my kid's room, tuck them in. Mm -hmm. I I draw the blind like I make sure the blinds are closed and the curtains are closed. And 100 percent of the reason for that is so they don't invite them in and the window. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. It's because of this movie scared to death and i get real pumped about this movie so in many vampire films and i'm not going to spoil this scene but in many many vampire films you hold up a crucifix to a vampire and all they like they they're taken back and they're repelled right well that that spin in this movie what happens in this movie is truly soul crushing to me and scary as hell i just scared to death go ahead wolfman I just was going to say that there are many different versions of the film, and I think the shorter, tighter versions uh, are much more effective for me. And I think that's I, I would agree with you that the scary moments are scary and very unsettling. I think any time we've got the vampire on screen, he is extremely unsettling mm-hmm. and the yeah the scene with the little boy in, in his bedroom very unsettling but there are also just very long stretches between that stuff that are at the not beginning very interesting. There is, at the beginning there is there's like a lot of character stuff at the very beginning of the movie the um, very first version of this was yeah. aired in two two-hour segments yeah and that's very long but later we saw 112 minute cut uh that was the first one i saw that was the first one i saw was the 112 minute theatrical release and Mm -hmm. just petrified absolutely Mm -hmm. scared the the hell out of me absolutely (laughs) i think you're going to enjoy this more unless maybe you're a fan of the novel and you like all that detail if you see a a shorter cut yeah well Well, all right well so that's uh salem's lot 1979 it's okay i just add a a little one little little addendum to it mm-hmm. it's not about salem's lot per se but if i'm looking at my list correctly and i'd be curious to see if you have something that else that pops in here jay mm-hmm. is salem's lot the last tv-based miniseries for a king property until 1990 yeah i believe so there's a wow. huge there's none in the eight all the movies that came out in the 80s and not one miniseries yeah there's oh, a huge drought until that's 90. shocking to me that's i had right. no idea yeah for those who would like to hear us talk more about salem's lot uh, we did cover this on episode 11 of Horror Movie Podcast, the Feral Vampires episode, which was a lot of fun. We talked about Nosferatu, Salem's Lot, 30 Days of Night, and Stakeland. But again, we'll put links to all of our previous discussions in the show notes at horrormoviepodcast.com. And to a little side note, Dave joined me for Spooky Flicks Fest last year, mm-hmm. and we covered Salem's yep. Lot. Perfect. Yeah. We'll get that one in there too. Yeah, Joel, okay. make sure you put in I'm every it to you right now. Every single Spooky Flicks Fest plug you can because um I love 
that program. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, absolutely. I, no, I want great. the listeners to check out all that stuff. So anytime, great. anytime you want. Okay, let's move on here. So not, the next one I have is 1980, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And um, I, I know that there's been a lot of talk about this. I'm just going to say one thing about this, and, and that's this. To me, this is one of the very few legitimate, honest-to-goodness, bona fide horror masterpieces. This is a masterpiece to me, period. Uh-huh. Anybody yeah, else? It, it, it's hard to argue with you because it, it's, um, you know, uh, what, what Kubrick did with it is, is I think, amazing. He did change the story a lot. I read... Uh, I read uh, instances where he called Stephen King at three o'clock in the morning and asked, do you believe in God uh, <laughs> while he was putting this movie together? And King gave a quick answer and Kubrick's like, thank you. And hung up the phone. <laughs> what? You know, but, <laughs> but he, he was, uh, I think, I think Jack Nicholson put it best. Uh, he was asked, uh, describes uh, Stanley Kubrick in one word. And Jack Nicholas goes one word, uh, meticulous. <laughs> yeah that's an understatement well said yes a- anybody else on the shining or shall we keep moving uh, well i i, I do want to just add i have i don't want to go down a, a rabbit trail with this but have any of you seen a, the recent video with shelly duvall where she was interviewed by like dr phil or something and she let's just say there's a lot of uh troubled goings on there and apparently she had pretty much just completely disappeared off the scene if you get a chance look it up i think it's they a lot of people were essentially taking dr phil i think that's who it was uh, to task because it seemed very exploitative in a way uh because she's obviously really struggling with a lot of uh issues uh and hmm. uh, and and it, it, a lot of the, you know a lot of the so-called speculation was and i'm sure it would have just been this but i, I do know that I guess isn't there the documentary about or there's been yeah shot, shot, by, mm-hmm. shot by Kubrick's daughter yes yeah and they, you can actually see like her hair wasn't that is that the one where you can Duvall's hair was starting to fall I mean she was having really she, her hair was falling out and then she goes my hair is falling out in clumps and Kubrick uh, sort of sarcastically held up four strands and said clumps yeah looking into and, the camera you know he was yeah. really he was That's really cold. really tough on her yeah really hard. tough on oh. her uh, during the making of that movie. Yeah, really. And it's a, it's one of those things that when you see her performance, it's so hysterical. It's so like honest to God, just um, it's like this emotional yeah, just I, I don't know. It, it, you 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 sense that there's something more going on there than mm-hmm. you know, especially within the it's, context of how she was being treated. I don't know, it just it bothers me. Yeah. So. It's very it's and there's also a, a sequence in that film that, that really struck me too in that behind the scenes where he's talking to Scatman Crothers. And Scatman Crothers is talking about how how great it is to be on the film and and everything and he starts to cry. And he says these are tears of joy but they don't look like tears of oh, joy. Oh good lord. You know, it, it looks as it's if it was a very very difficult as if something had just happened that really shook him up. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Um, where's the screen act, screen actors guild on that one? <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah, right. I mean, what do we pay these people for? Yeah, Just really. kidding. I don't pay them at all. But <laughs> I mean, I think these are. This is one of the greatest horror films ever made, without a doubt. And so it has to be then one of the greatest King adaptations, without a doubt. But I def- there are definitely a lot of King fans who were down on The Shining. Um, just simply because it does not 
do sure. the book justice. So mm-hmm. that's unfortunate. Um, we did talk about this also on Movie Podcast Weekly in a special bonus episode, Jay. This was back in October of 2013 as well. And mm-hmm. we did a, a screen at a, a listener of the show's house. Do you remember that? Chad Downey? <laughs> I sure do. Friend of the show. Loved we it. We watched oh. The Shining and Room 237 and <laughs> talked about those movies. And it was a blast. We had a lot of fun discussing that with the the goofballs over at movie podcast weekly so <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> yeah. i mean i think we definitely need to review this in full eventually and yeah. hopefully we can do that soon but that's right yeah yeah it's an absolute classic and i saw it, it is on your top 10 horror movies of all time list jay so you're damn right it is that's right <laughs> yes sir thank you all right, so let's move on. I think the next one on the list would be uh, George A. Romero's 1982 horror anthology, Creep Show. Yes. Right. Screenplay for that. Mm-hmm. Great, no. best, the best, the, as I said in you know, our Romero tribute, is the best uh, horror anthology ever. It is really hard to argue with that. That is a very, very, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a classic. I remember seeing it when I was really young, and it, friggin traumatized me now seeing it years later i can appreciate a lot of the humor in it but as a kid oh my god especially just you know mm-hmm. the the grandpa and the right <laughs> I, there, there were just moments in that movie that just traumatized me fantastic right. well you know how some some people have this like um warm and happy nostalgic association with 80s horror a lot of times mm-hmm. surrounding slasher flicks like, for example, uh, you know, Friday the 13th or what have you. But to me, the Creep Show is one of those one of those films that's like, yes, that captures my childhood. Now, now, I don't know if you guys remember, did this play all the time on like HBO and Cinemax or one of those cable channels? Because I, I seem to remember it always being on TV at my aunt and uncle's house, which is where I'd get exposed to a lot of horror films. It did. It did play on cable. Yeah. Yeah. I I think on HBO. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See, my memory is of creep show two being on HBO more. I don't know why that is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why, but that, that's what I remember being on cable. Gotcha. Absolutely. Okay. Anything else on creep show before we keep on trucking? Just that we covered it on Horror Movie Podcast episode 99, where we did our old school horror anthologies from 1919 to 1999. That was a big stretch of years there. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. And I would recommend, if you haven't heard that one, check it out. It was a a lot of fun. Interesting side note, we've never covered it on Retro Movie Geek. Uh Uh-oh. Oddly Uh, enough. Yeah. Better set that straight right now. Yeah, really, really. I'm, I'm just kidding. Epic fail. Yeah. It really is. Pathetic. Dereliction of duty. And here's what Joel will do, Dr. Shock. I know that's your all-time favorite. Um, he will cover it, but not let you know he's covering it. I will totally, it. intentionally <laughs> not tell Dave. He's going to keep it a secret. Anyways. Okay, let's move on to some serious business here. The next one I have on the list is 1982 Cujo. And yes, it is my number three all-time favorite horror film I have two quick notes on this. I've talked about Cujo um, ad nauseum on this podcast, and I'm I'm not sorry about that. But I just want to say <laughs> betrayal, betrayal. Yeah, betrayal. I'm going to say it like 20 times. No, I'm not going to do that. But the the two notes about this film are uh, Stephen King has said on on multiple occasions that when he wrote this, he had several addictions going on, the alcoholism and drugs and. He was really struggling. He talks about this in his book on writing. 
which is a great book, by the way, if you're in the writing. Fantastic book. But this, but Cujo, he says that you know because he was so out of it a lot of the time on these drugs that a lot of the writing of this book is just a fog for him. He doesn't even remember it, and I think that it, I think that explains a lot. The second point I was going to make, which is the way the novel ends, which I won't reveal here or anything. I think most people know, but. He said of all the things he's ever done, he probably regrets the ending of Cujo the most. And, and that's why, um, you know, it ends up being different in the film. But I, I think that's um, noteworthy. Oh, and one last thing, and I'll shut up, I promise. This is the greatest, the greatest siege narrative to me, period, in horror. I love it. What do you guys got? Well, no, I, I mean, I enjoyed the movie as well. And, and this sort of falls into that time period where... There were just so many Stephen King movies, um, you know, be, being churned out. Uh, but no, Cujo is uh, is is a good one, and I agree with mm-hmm. you. I think it's a, I think it's a great season. Mm-hmm. And Ed, Cujo is one of those movies that we all had the friend that Josh described earlier, the kid <laughs> that could see movies we weren't allowed yet to see, and he would tell us about them. And we loved that kid, even though he gave us nightmares. And I don't remember his name, but I remember one of those, I had several of those kids throughout my, between summer camps and, you know, the, the playground that would tell me these things. And I remember that's how I heard about the exorcist and the, uh, alligator and alligator. <laughs> yes. Uh, hell yeah, buddy. Forster, John Sayles, you cannot go wrong with alligator. Down the right, toilet. So, down the toilet. <laughs> that's right, buddy. Uh, and and uh, Cujo was another one. And I remember this this you know describing moments of the dog outside the car and the the, the base involving a baseball bat and and just being mesmerized. And then I finally saw it. And it actually, you know, oftentimes kids would tell you about things and you go see it and you're like, what? This was not nothing like what I was told. But Cujo always held up for me. Um, I remember I, I, cause I had been a, a big ET fan when I was, when I was really young. So seeing, you know, D D Wallace uh, in, in that, in that role took a little getting used to, to make the transition. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a fantastic movie and just the, the, the dog acting alone is stupendous. <laughs> yes. Yep. So, so Wolfman Josh here is, is probably our most, um, uh, professional person on this podcast, so he will probably um, ask me to cut this out. But but our, our dear friend Ron Martin over on the Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast, he's been to a lot of horror conventions, he's worked a lot of conventions, and he tells a story one time, <laughs> he told me this story on his podcast, that he was sitting in a, a bar with um, Dee Wallace, and, and she was... Um, you know, at you know, having some drinks with him, and he he got the real sense that she was interested in him, but she was a good deal older than she was in Cujo. Just saying. And I yeah. met Ron Martin; he's very handsome. Oh. Well, I, and, and I'll just say, if you're if you're if you're if you're a single guy, and you're having drinks with D. Wallace, you could do far worse. Indeed, indeed. indeed. Yeah. Okay, Josh is like, cut that out. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, Rumor mongering. I do want to mention that, of course, we covered Cujo and Jay gave an incredible review of Cujo in Horror Movie Podcast episode 119, Man's Best Fiend, our Horror Pets episode. And if you haven't heard it yet, we have a commentary for Cujo that you can get for the low, low price of $2.50 or more. Feel free to give more uh, by becoming a patron of Movie Podcast Network. That's special features episode three, our Cujo commentary. 
And we should mention, Josh, that that was recorded with the clowns over at Movie Podcast Weekly. So <laughs> not the usual horror movie podcast content. Anyways, um, 1983, right? The Dead Zone. Yes. Tell it. The ice is going to break. <laughs> yes. what we need is more cowbell <laughs> sorry yeah it's it's a classic we we actually i cannot i was just looking it up because i knew i had done it on either retro movie geek or when it was called forgotten flicks we did it back in episode 66 of forgotten flicks i cannot believe it was that long ago it was jason and me we covered it and uh i remember re- i had it was one of those a, it was an early King film I hadn't seen by that point, which at the time I remember being very surprised by. And B, it was a Cronenberg film, that, an early, earlier Cronenberg film that I hadn't seen. That I, and so I remember being very surprised by that. Yes. And, and it's just, it's not a perfect movie. Um, and, and I will say that as I recall, it's been a while, but as I recall, a lot of the uh, plot involving the the senator and sort of what happens uh, involving the, the visions of Walken's character. I remember it felt a little rushed emotionally to me uh, at, at the at the time of watching it, but it's still an effective movie, and there's still some really unsettling crap <laughs> in that one uh, I- involving some some things he comes across uh, throughout his uh, investigations of uh, certain events. Uh, I'm trying to be vague here. We spoil everything on my show, Jay. So this is actually. <laughs> A really good exercise for me to, to not go. And then there's this one part. Yeah, right. So, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know when the last time you guys saw it was, but I actually really liked the Dead Zone. It's been a while, but I'll tell you this: every time, it doesn't matter what it is. When I when I see Christopher Walken in a movie that's not supposed to be comedy, you know, I, I get extra freaked out strictly because it's Christopher Walken because <laughs> he's a weird dude and he does weird things with his face and his eyes and his cadence and everything. And I love him and admire him, but, but he always adds, he adds a little bit to the unsettling nature. There's something about like, there's something that some, some actors are just very strange. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I remember, you know, in shadow of the vampire, um, uh, I remember telling my brother about that movie and he said, John Malkovich and William Dafoe were like, two of the strangest, and he actually said, all it needed is Christopher Walken. <laughs> and you would have had, like, all the strange actors in Hollywood in that movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole list, but... <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, so that's The Dead Zone. Now, there, you know, obviously there was, like, um, a remake of that. I haven't actually seen the 2002 version, by well, the way. Well, there's a television series of The yes, Dead Zone Yes, An- Anthony well. Michael Hall. And that, that's yeah. the one. Okay, that, that makes sense. All right, so that's The Dead Zone 1983. And now at this point, let's move into Dr. Shock's feature review of Christine. She is seductive. She is passionate. She is possessive. She is pure. Evil. She is Christine. A 1958 Plymouth Fury, possessed by hell. Her previous owner is not alive to warn her present one. Once she lures you behind the wheel, you will be hers, body and soul. There is no place you can hide, no place you can run, and nothing you can do can stop her. 
Because how do you kill something that can't possibly be alive? All right, Christine, 1983. Josh was talking a little bit ago about um, great directors who had adapted uh, Stephen King's works, and I think John Carpenter definitely fits into that mold, especially at this time in his career. Um, this was around the time that Carpenter could really do no wrong. Um, th- that long stretch where he was just turning out one great movie after another. Um, uh, Christine, again, like you said, 1983, directed by John Carpenter. Um, and it's about uh, Arnie Cunningham and uh, uh, his love for a 1958 Plymouth Fury, which is nicknamed Christine by its previous owner. Um, almost immediately, you know, he, when he buys Christine, he starts to change. Uh, he, he had been, you know, sort of a sort of even pushed around at school. He had been a little bit meek. Uh, but now that he's got Christine, all of a sudden, uh, he's a lot more confident than he had ever been before. He, uh, he even gets up the courage to ask uh, this girl, Lee, uh, who's, you know, the most beautiful girl in the school. He asks her out. Um, uh, you know, his friend Dennis is a little concerned that Arnie might be changing a little too much and that Christine is, is responsible for it. Uh, he starts looking into the vehicle's history. He finds uh, all these different, you know, strange uh, things that had happened with, with the previous owner um, and uh, some tragedy around the car. But Arnie doesn't care. For him, Christine is his life and the most important relationship uh, that he's ever had. Uh, now, one thing I'll say up front, and I know I've said this before. I know I said it on Land of the Creeps, and I'm pretty sure I said it when we reviewed um, Maximum Overdrive. I'm not necessarily scared of cars. <laughs> I don't find them particularly frightening um, on the surface, you know, because I think, you know what? All right. If, if you don't want to, you know, if a car is chasing you, uh, you know, jump to one side, uh, jump <laughs> 10 feet this way, run the other direction. Um, here's one tip that I think uh, would, would probably help. Don't run down the middle of the road. Right. <laughs> uh, That's an idea. Which you see a lot of people do. And even in this movie, there's a scene. Down an alleyway happens. with no doorways. Right. Or, yeah. right. <laughs> now, that, that said, there are some really cool scenes in this movie with the car. Um, you have the opening scene where it's on the assembly line um, and, and, and somebody sits in the front seat. Um, you have a scene where, like you were saying, Joel, someone goes in an alley and they think they're safe, <laughs> only to find out that the car is willing to go further <laughs> yes. than, uh, than anybody thought it would, which is a tremendous scene. Um, and uh, so so there are some really good scenes with the car in this movie. But for me, what really makes the film uh, is, is the character of Arnie Cunningham and the transformation he goes through. I mean, you see him sort of develop from this from this nerdy sort of kid who gets pushed around all the time to somebody who starts pushing back Mm -hmm. to the point that he's pushing back too much, you know, like his friend and even the girlfriend eventually get concerned and say, yo, this is, this is not right. He's changed way too much. And it's this car that's doing it. What is it about this car? And then you have just those great scenes. I'm not even going to go into it, but there's one scene where he just stands there and he says, show me when he realizes what the car is oh yeah, and they're alone in that garage. He's that's what he just says, show me and boom, you know, you got, you got that great scene. Um, and later on when, uh, when he's driving with his friend and he's talking about how great she is and all, and he's like, well, yeah, Lee's a great girl. And he's like, Lee, no, I'm talking about Christine. It's, it's the, it's Keith Gordon's performance and the level that he goes to, to it. 
you know, he's convincing at all steps. He's convincing as as the guy gets pushed around. He's convincing as the guy getting some confidence and falls in love with his car. And he's convincing as the psychopath um, that he eventually becomes because of this car. And for me, that's where I think the real strength of, of Christine lies um, is is how that relationship uh, is depicted uh, and how it affects uh, the character of Arnie Cunningham. That's where I think a lot of the horror falls into it as well. And when I read here that Scott Bayo was considered for that role, I can't <laughs> tell you how thankful I am that they decided to go with Keith Gordon instead. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, he can play Chachi, but I don't know how Chachi. he can mine uh, some of those, some of those. I mean, uh, other emotions. I think and Joel I, Joel has a Chachi poster on his bedroom uh, wall. Uh, it's it's a Teddy. It's a Joni loves Chachi po- poster. Okay. So in my defense, <laughs> okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, and and like I said, there are some really good scenes with the car. I like that it all only plays music from the era in which it was. Uh, in which it was, it came off the assembly line, you know, 1958. It's only playing uh, yeah. classic and, rock and roll. And kind of a note on that, uh, Doctor Chuck. Just a little side note. Uh, I like how um, you know sometimes that the song selection communicates a certain message, and I feel like uh, mm-hmm. they ripped that off on uh, Transformers with Bumblebee. They ripped it off. <laughs> oh from yeah, Christine. yeah. Well, there's and there's a scene at the end where um, it's playing. Um, Johnny Ace is uh, pledging my love, and mm-hmm. it's because of this movie that I that I actually love that song. It's because of that scene in this movie that I have that song on on my uh, iPad. Will you sing some of it for us? No, <laughs> no, he's not doing that. No, I'll do I'll do you a favor. I'll do you a favor and not do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, and 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 Dave, would you also say too that? And I don't. I, only thing I I, re, I had this vague memory, and I after you're you're done with your review, I, I wanted just to mention this. But I remember seeing something when I was very young, where you saw the multiple cars that they used for Christine, and you get this sense in the movie, as I recall, that the car is in fact alive. That it actually seems pissed. <laughs> yes. I don't know how they pull it Absolutely. off, but it, you know, back to that scene you're referring to when it's push, you know, pushing into that alley. Just it's. Yes. It was, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is a car, this is a car possessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, is what it is, and and it and it makes that connection with with its owner. We find out it happened with its previous owner. Um, you know, where his brother just uh, talks about, um, you know, what his brother went through with this car and how how it became his entire life, and that's what happens to um, to uh, Arnie Cunningham as well uh, in, in the film. Um, I don't know that the supporting players are quite as good as Keith Gordon. I think he's mm-hmm. far and away uh, the best uh, in this film as far as the younger actors. Uh, you get some other uh, other people in, in the film, I think, who do a good job. But of that trio of him, the friend, and the girlfriend, I think you know Keith, Keith Gordon is, you know, he's just way ahead of them. Um, but, uh, and I also, I also like this. Uh, uh, as you know, as as a Carpenter movie, I mean, it's not necessarily uh, a Carpenter film like we're used to, like Escape from New York or mm-hmm. uh, something along those lines. But um, no, I, I enjoy it. And I would give it probably a, a, an eight out of ten, and I think it's one that you have to own. Mm-hmm. Okay, eight out of ten for Christine. A- any other thoughts on Christine? 
Can I just add a quick thing? Please. Do you guys remember a show that Leonard Nimoy hosted back in the 80s, from like 82 to 87, called Standby Lights, Camera Action? It would have probably been on Nickelodeon. Okay. (laughs) That sounds vaguely familiar. Okay. So some of my earliest movie memories from the early 80s are because of this show. I remember that was where I first, I, I feel like that was where I saw a clip from the original Star Wars where they showed the Han uh, uh, interfacing with Jabba the Hutt, but it was not Jabba the Hutt. It was a guy with like a big fur right. vest on. You know, we've all seen the clip since then, but that was where yes. I first saw that as a kid. And then uh, I, Christine would have probably been my first visual exposure to both Carpenter and a Stephen King-based movie because I, I always had the sense like it was that show that I saw it on. Well, as we were talking through and, and I was trying to remember where did I see, cause I remember seeing where they showed all the different cars and they were showing clips from the movie. Well, episode eight titled stars of standby lights, camera action. So this had been 83 time period. Uh, he interviewed Vincent Spano and a hairstylist and then presented clips of Christine and the keep. So that is why I have this nice. like just burned into my psyche, this image, uh, certain images from Christine. I mean, I obviously saw the, the full movie several times since then, but I have this sense of being like, you know, six or seven years old and watching pieces of this movie and it just really sticking with me. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. I, I vaguely remember that. Was that now? Was he kind of like backstage at a on a in a theater? Like I feel like I remember like a red curtain and him kind of like standing there. Vaguely, I think like yes, yes, and he would and he would basically act as like the he he would I think act more of a just the host like transitioning between the various pieces right. that they would be talking about and showing is what I seem to recall again. I mean, I have not seen this in decades, uh, but uh, but yeah, I found it on Wikipedia, so it was a thing that was not completely in my right imagination. On. <laughs> um, I, I, I like Christine as well. I seem to remember, isn't this one of Greg Amortis's favorite films or of course I, it's John Carpenter. I believe so. Yeah. I yeah. remember him saying that he had bought like a little Christine toy car that he was telling us about <laughs> on, a, <laughs> on land of the creeps yep. back when I did that show for a few episodes. And, um, uh-huh. yeah, I, I, I really like this one. I, I can't remember what I rated it last time we talked about it. Cause I think that wasn't land of the creeps, but, I, I tend to agree with Dave. I think I'd give this like a 7.5 and I think it's a must see. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And even though it's on one hand, it's like Dave said, it's kind of weird because you're not super afraid of card cars traditionally, but I think the story is interesting enough. It, it draws you in. Um, yeah. I mean, I can, I can totally see it. I think I'm around, it's been forever since I've seen it, but I'm around like a seven, 7.5 as well. Mm-hmm. I'd be an eight. I'm an eight for sure. Okay. Awesome. And I, well, I feel like this was a big influence on Lost Highway, and I don't know why. I, I haven't watched the films either of them recently, but I kind of feel like <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of Christine and oh. Lost Highway in, hmm. in my recollection. I can see it. Oh. All right, and next, I think that brings us to 1984: Children of the Corn. <laughs> um, does everybody hate this? Because I actually don't hate Children of the Corn. Franchise. Oh, Lord, no! Who hates Children of the Corn? I, I don't hate it. I've seen it. I don't remember a lot about it. And it wasn't that long ago that I watched it recently, but I don't hate it. Because the reason I ask is because I I am actually, well, at least I've come to consider myself a Children of the Corn apologist. I like the franchise and I have Mm -hmm. sentimental reasons for this. But, um, but, But yeah, it seems like a lot of times when I talk about that, 
people make fun of it or criticize it. And maybe they're mainly talking about the older ones, but I'll tell you this. When most people were like, you know, creeped out and huddled up on uh, Y2K, I'm talking about uh, December 31st, 1999 as the New Year's Eve changed to the year 2000 and everybody was wondering if the world was going to shut down or whatever. Um, the, the girl I was dating at the time, uh, we, we had two different types of genres of movie choices. I can't believe I'm saying this. Um, <laughs> we decided not to go with the other genre. <laughs> <laughs> and we went with horror. And so um, we, we picked some horror flicks. And one of them was like uh, Children of the Corn. And I think uh, maybe two or three of, of those actually. Like we, we had a few different movies. And we watched those on that New Year's Eve. And that was a total blast to me. So part of it is this like, you know, good memory of it being, you know, Y2K, New Year's Eve, hearing some fireworks off in the distance and watching Children of the Corn but even having said that, it's freaky to think about killer kids in the corn. And what oh, was yeah. that other? What was that other genre? <laughs> yeah, I want to know. I, I won't go into that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you do realize we're all thinking the worst possible thing. That's what it was. That's okay, what it was. Never mind. <laughs> okay, so but anyway, <laughs> moving right along. Yes, let's let's do. <laughs> I will say, Children of the Corn was was a movie that. I was afraid to see as a kid because it was another one that people had told me about. And, yes. and all I really knew about was that the kids and I'm, this is not to me, this is not a spoiler alert situation because it's the freaking opening of the movie. Kids murdered their parents. Mm. And for some reason, and you know, I would go to my grandmother's house, my dad's mom and you know, and not to any way, shape or form, you know, get like done a, a religious uh, angle, but they were Southern Baptist. And so there was like, you know, we'd, you know, occasionally go to church with her and there was just a certain vibe. And, you know, and then you'd see like a little clip from the movie and I had it in my head that the movie would like traumatize me and make me like psycho. I don't know what I thought because <laughs> I like UG. I was actually a, a very sensitive child. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just, I would, build this crap up in my head. I was scared as hell to watch it. I was, I was convinced this movie was going to show me something I couldn't handle. I think that's really what it came down to. And then of course I finally saw it. And, and when the, that whole thing plays out, it really wasn't that bad or graphic. Uh, but, but yeah, it's an uneven movie. It's definitely got problems, but I don't know. I have, I have an affinity for it. I think part two is the one I actually saw in the theater. Uh, and they added a, a dollar theater, uh, near me, I, I want to say I would have been in high school, early high school, and that came out like '92 ish, and uh, and I remember going to the theater and actually seeing it. And I don't think I've seen any of the other ones. I may have seen part three, but I, I do know they got they sort of fall into the howling <laughs> school where it's like mm -hmm. the first one got <laughs> considered a you know, well howling definitely considered a classic, but you know the first one sure the core for a lot of people they love it because but as they go on they progressively uh, let's say they don't improve let's let's just put it that way yeah that's true uh, I'll give you that much <laughs> it's been a really long time since I've seen this I had a very similar experience to Joel where I was terrified to see this as a kid and then finally did um, I. I have been wanting for a long time to do an episode called killing in the name of, where we talk about people who kind of kill in the name of God. And that might be a fun time to review children of the corn, like frailty, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Oh God, it's such a great movie. Mm -hmm. yeah, frailty would be a good one to discuss. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. Let's do it. Not Stephen King, but still great. All yes. right. Yeah. That's children of the corn. All right. Then it's also the same year, 1984. We got fire starter. What do you guys think yeah, about yes. this one? 
it has been a long time since I've seen it. I remember not really being that impressed with it at the time. <laughs> right. Um, but it, I like it. It's been a while. It's it's been since probably eighty four, eighty five. Wow. Since since I last saw it, oh I just my. never had a desire to go back and watch it again. I think Drew Barrymore was what like eight years old at the time. Um, the only thing I remember is a scene with her and George C. Scott, mm-hmm. where George C. Scott was about to break her nose or something. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it, it it it's a it's I remember it's a movie that I felt the same way about Dave, and then every time I would revisit it, I would come away going, mm-hmm. "Yeah, I was I was right." And yet, I I feel like the last time I saw it was long enough ago that I'm going to convince myself again. No, no, you know what? Maybe I was just in a bad mood. <laughs> but oh yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I want to see it again too, just because it's been so long. I mean, it's been what 32 years now since I've probably mm-hmm. seen this movie. I, I do mm-hmm. want to see it again as well. Yeah, it's probably been 10 or 15 for me. But I feel like even the last time I saw it, I, I came away going, yeah, no, I, I was right the first time. Really, yeah. really not great. Yeah, I'm with you. And I've never been a huge uh, Bar- Drew Barrymore fan, except w- for some exceptions. Well, there have been exceptions, of course. But but with this one, yeah, it, it doesn't do it for me. But it, it's okay. I mean, but when you have something like Carrie, right, or earlier on, uh-huh. you, you know, you don't really need Firestarter as much to me. But sure. Well, I saw this one before before Carrie. This was one that I saw. I was probably five or six years old when I saw this. I mean, I was wow. little. Like this was a sleepover movie that my cousins were watching, and me and my friends snuck in the room and and watched what they were watching. Kind of a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. How, I don't know exactly how old I was, but I, you know, Drew Barrymore is older than me, and I had a huge crush on her as a kid. And there's like this the flowing hair with the fire behind. I just remember thinking conceptually, this is so cool as a kid. Right. And I don't think I've revisited the movie since. So I don't, don't let that memory just stay there. You'll be much happier. I think (laughs) (laughs) that's right. So yeah, if there are listeners out there who love Firestarter from 1984, you want to defend it, let us know in the show notes for episode 124. All right, let's move to 1985. We've got cat's eye, which we've talked about recently horror anthology um joel what do you think about this one i always enjoyed it i remember i want to say the first time i saw it it may have been on network tv because i seem to remember it having commercials and and being somewhat edited for television and then i watched it maybe a year or so later i was still a kid and without giving away when it is i do remember that there was a moment where isn't there a decapitated head that comes into play or maybe more than one am i remembering that correctly in one of the stories where someone's head, a female, isn't there something to do with the, uh, am I, am I, or is this a completely different movie? <laughs> I, I wonder if you're, no, I don't think, yeah, that might be a different. Um, it's not, a, it's, it, it, it would have probably been either, I think maybe was it the ledge? I feel like there was like the, because one of them has like a mob boss, right? Isn't there something with a yes, guy's wife? Yes, so Ken, Kenneth McMillan and Robert Hayes were here yes. to walk around the ledge. Yes, yes. but yes. isn't there something That's with his wife? Point. Didn't they do something? Like, or was there... Or he was sleeping with the the. I, I'm literally going purely off memory here, folks. I, I I don't remember. Is it that his wife was having an affair with Hayes, or was it? Yes, that, that's okay. what it was. Yeah. Okay, and wasn't she dispatched in some fashion? I think you know what you might be right. I, okay. I have to. I, I think I'm not. I don't remember 100, percent but you might be right about that. Well, because other uh, along with my fear of 
you know, un- unruly, uh, hyper-religious psychopaths uh, uh, turning me into, into some kind of, uh, of, of I don't know, cr- crazed uh, person. I was convinced that for some reason decapitation freaked me out. I don't know what it was. I, <laughs> yeah. I guess just, you know, that, that act always anytime a head would just come rolling it would just admit there's i'll have to tell you my little house in the prairie halloween episode story sometime traumatized me for years there was a head involved so i it, it always i always had this sense with cat's eye that there was a head maybe i'm remembering that wrong but it was as a kid and, and please jay feel free to cut this whole thing down because i'm rambling um <laughs> you know it i i enjoyed it i do my sense memory and it has been probably 20 years since i've seen this thing I just remember it being somewhat uneven. Now, it was also directed by the same guy who did Cujo, correct? Am I remembering that right, Louis Teague? Yes, that's correct. Okay, okay. So I, I know that the chops were there to create you know, really great suspense. But I, and I remember some of the stories working a lot better than others. Uh, but, I, but I also remember that uh, it, it just, some of it wasn't even, I, I know that every, people often love to refer back to the troll uh, towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, was it Frank Welker? Is that the guy who did the, the voice? Because I also know he was the voice of some of the munchies uh, as well. And, <laughs> and, and, for, and, and, and may have uh, had a hand in the, uh, the feature review I'm going to be doing tonight. So, but he, I believe, was the voice of the little troll. I just remember, even as a kid, thinking that was, like, it didn't freak me out. I just thought it was goofy. So, I don't really, I don't dislike Cat's Eye. I know why a lot of people would like it. I just feel like it's a movie that there's probably a certain measure of C&D connected with it for people if they grew up watching it which is your um nostalgic disorder thing. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly okay yeah i agree with you and, and it's this quirky little oddity from the 80s that i think is it kind of screams 80s when you see it mm-hmm. so i agree with you and, and joel you might for whatever reason because i haven't revisited cat's eye in a while so i don't remember what you were describing but a lot of what you described mob boss with a wife who's having an affair that comes into play, those themes come into play in Thinner, which we'll be talking about mm-hmm. later on tonight. Mm-hmm. So, yep. so I don't I don't know if that's maybe part of what you're thinking about. Dave reviewed Cat's Eye in length uh, during a Frankensteinian episode, number 39 of Horror Movie Podcast. And then it got brought up during our old school horror anthologies episode briefly. Uh, it, we missed it in our Horror Pets episode because Dave wasn't there at the time when Jay and I were discussing the uh, the cat stealing your breath, and we didn't remember that. But had Dave been there, I think he he would have, and that would probably oh, would have yeah. made it into our horror pets episode. Mm-hmm. And then finally, Matroid brought it as a feature review in horror movie podcast episode one hundred and twenty. So yes, talked about cats like quite a bit on the show. Yeah, yeah. Surprisingly, we're still at nineteen eighty five, and I would love to hear what the Wolfman Josh Legary thinks of Silver Bullet. I love Silver Bullet. I grew up with this movie. I'm a big Corey Haim fan. All the Coreys. I like all of them. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, Haim especially. I was a big fan of License to Drive and Lucas <laughs> and, you know, Dream a Little Dream. And uh, so this was, you know, being a werewolf fanatic, this was right in my wheelhouse and something that I've I've really appreciated over the years. I rewatched it just today because I thought I might feature review it for the show, but I thought actually we've talked about doing disability and horror uh, at a future date, and I thought this would actually be a really interesting one to talk about. So I figured I'd save the feature review for that discussion. But 
I'm, I'm a big fan of this. I love the themes of, uh, of religion that are going on in the film. I love the themes of the, you know, the small town and, and how that's playing into the psychology of the characters. There's a movie that's one of my favorite unknown little indie movies, and it is called Brigham city. Mm-hmm. And I have a belief that Brigham city is based heavily on hmm. silver bullet. Interesting. Uh, Brigham city is a Mormon uh, movie mm-hmm. and it, it deals with Mormon characters and kind of the religiosity of that group of people. But it's also kind of a murder mystery thriller. Wilford Brimley has a, a small but amazing part in it. And it's just an underseen film. It was compared favorably to blood simple Hmm. Uh, when it came out and it's one that I've talked to our listeners about before. Um, and I know Sal Roma went and sought that out and watched it and liked it. Okay. Um, but I think taken in light of silver bullet, I think it actually makes it very interesting. And so one of these days, I know this is a random topic, especially on this episode, but I would love to cover Mormon movies. Cause I think they are a really interesting slice of cinema. And I'd like to do that out as a movie podcast network show. And what I'd really like to do is have someone like Joel or Dave on to talk about it because they have no background in that. Whereas I think a lot of our Utah based hosts have more background in Mormonism. Mm-hmm. I'd love to get a complete outsider's point of view on that stuff, but plus we're heathens. Yeah, but right. so, so, uh, you know, while Blood Simple was kind of what the critics saw in Brigham City, when I when I revisited uh, Silver Bullet around the time uh, of Brigham City, I thought, oh man, this is exactly what this is. And I went and I I was friends with the filmmaker, and I mentioned it to him. I said, hey, I just rewatched Silver Bullet, and holy cow, I just realized how much you borrowed from that for Brigham city. And he said, he looked shocked and he immediately clammed up and he said, I've never seen it. And then just like mm. walked away. <laughs> oh. oh, you should know. I, I would own that man to be a hell. Yeah, I did. I love silver, silver bullet. Come on. I know. That's like when you tell a musician, Oh, your, your music reminds me of this musician. And they're always offended. No matter how great the musician is, they're always like, so you put off by that. Go ahead. Sorry. Reading about Brigham City while you were talking, Josh. It uh, yes, I can see completely why you would think that. That uh, and going, I'm going to find this and watch it with that context in mind. That is excellent. I like that. Okay. It's awesome. de- it's a decent movie. And even though I am a Mormon, I don't love a lot of Mormon cinema. In fact, I dislike a lot of Mormon cinema. But I I like Brigham. I like Brigham City. I back you on it. What'd you say, Joel? I said I, I've heard you talk a lot about that. It's interesting. Yeah, I'll stop talking about it then. <laughs> no, I didn't. Mean that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, as a werewolf movie, I think it is not the best. I think there are much better werewolf movies out there, but I think it's an interesting one. I think the biggest problem I have with this movie is how it's shot. I mentioned earlier, I think that the uh, voiceover is kind of extraneous. I don't think it needed to be in there. That's that's an issue I have with it. But mostly, I just I hate the way they shot it. Uh, and and, and uh, this director it was. His first film, his name is Daniel Atias. Atias. Um, he's gone on to direct a ton of my favorite television. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just a prolific television director. He started very early with my, Miami Vice and Sledgehammer, but he has directed episodes of 21 Jump Street 
episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Sopranos, Alias, Six Feet Under, The Wire, Heroes, Lost, Treme, Big Love, House, Entourage, The Walking Dead, True Blood, The Killing, and The Americans. So he's a very uh, prolific television director. He is going to be on directing the pilot of the new Castle Rock television series that's coming out. Oh, cool. Yes. So I'm very curious to see how his skills have changed over the last, you know, 30 some years but um yeah big fan of this movie despite you know I, not loving the shot selection but it has um, a great cast that movie yeah. and it's a fantastic cast and this is one of the few that was adapted by stephen king so uh, you know that's interesting to look at as well have any of you checked out cycle of the werewolf the book that's based on the no. novella no it, well it, it has artwork throughout and this is one of those that i remember picking up as a kid and just thinking that it looked awesome uh bernie wrightson the guy who helped create swamp thing uh did all the artwork for it uh, and actually, a uh, little side note, there was a con here about a year or so ago that he was at. And I was waiting in line with my middle child who really wanted to meet Ray Parks, a.k.a. Darth Maul. <laughs> so we did that and we waited an insane amount of time to meet him. Super nice guy, by the way, but still insane amount of time. And by the time I got to Bernie Wright's table, he was already gone and he passed away like six months later. So, yeah, way to bring it down, Joel. So, (laughs) um, and so I, because I always just, his artwork at Suck of the Werewolf, it just, I always equate the two together. And back to that discussion we had earlier, Psycho the Werewolf being a novella, and it is a really short volume, really, you know, lends itself to the, to the visual medium of film. The structure of it is a little bit different it does play out as seasons, as I recall, uh, like the movie does, but it's it's still different the way it kind of jumps around in, in time. And it, it's it just it's it's got a lot of if you get a chance, check it out, try to try to find a copy with his his artwork in it. And the only other thing I will say, besides the fact it has Tyrion Quinn and any movie with Tyrion Quinn, it's art immediately jumps up a peg in my book. <laughs> right. Yep. But it but but it also the the moment and it's not graphic at all. But all I'm going to say is Brady. And the way that plays out and Terry O'Quinn's reaction to it and then the father's reaction to it has always haunted me. I, and uh, now that especially being a dad, but just the way that whole sequence plays out always found very disturbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. His reaction is so just primal. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been forever since I've seen Silver Bullet, but I will say, and I think Josh owns this as well, as do I, at Walmart right now, and most Walmarts I've seen at least, you can get this four-pack of Stephen King movies that has Silver Bullet, Graveyard Shift, Pet Cemetery, and The Dead Zone. I definitely recommend that. I think it's like 12 bucks or something for the I DVD. Picked that up and, wow. I picked that up and watched a couple of those this week. So mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, then. So uh, that's uh, Silver Bullet. And now we move into 1986 Maximum Overdrive, based on the <laughs> short, short story Trucks, which is a 1973 short story of Stephen King's. Now, here's the thing, guys. I actually remember going to see this in the theater with my dad. Wow. Yes, I know. It's like, <laughs> did that play in theaters? <laughs> it, it turns out it did. And, um,. I, I remember loving it as a kid. I thought it was the coolest thing because it's actually a siege narrative. And speaking of being afraid of cars, you have a siege <laughs> narrative of trucks descending upon this diner. And um, 
Uh, and I, you know, ever since that young age in 1986, I was like, what, 10 years old. I mm-hmm. loved that. I loved it. But um, I will say, unfortunately, I revisited this probably <laughs> four years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was actually kind of hard to find uh, for some reason. But it does not hold up super great, unfortunately. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting <laughs> no. because, I mean, this is a movie that... Um, uh, over in Land of the Creeps, Greg and Mortis and, and Hanko Hatchet have a lot of affection for. Part of the reason it was filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina, which mm-hmm. is sort of, uh, you know, Greg and Mortis's uh, stomping grounds. Sure. Um, but they also just sort of really, they, they, they have a genuine affection for the movie. And I think it's really interesting because we reviewed it on Horror Movie Podcast, and I also reviewed this on Land of the Creeps. I gave the exact same rating on Horror Movie Podcast that came in the highest of the three of us on Land of the Creeps, I was the lowest of the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, that, I, Mag- Maximum Overdrive, also known as the movie that teaches you why you probably shouldn't be doing coke the entire time you're making a movie. Yes. <laughs> oh, and of course, that terrifying scene. He's admitted it. He said he was just yeah. completely. Yes. Wait, he yeah. did. And he, he's also called this the worst adaptation of one of his stories. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what's I, I th- this also teaches you that if a truck is is bearing down on you, don't <laughs> stand there and scream for about forty five seconds. Right, move. Yeah, yes. or and if you can't outrun a steamroller, you get what you deserve. It's called natural selection. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I actually disagree with him that this is the worst adaptation, and part oh. of that's just the soundtrack is so good. Yes. No, it's it's true. Yes. I, I give you that for sure, and I agree. And who doesn't love Emilio Estevez? I know I do. But um, yeah, directed by Stephen King, interestingly. And um, here's the thing about this: when I was a kid, I appreciated the Green Goblin truck, right? But but then when I was older, that thing looked super cheesy to me. So that's another complaint. <laughs> Anyways, all right, enough. Oh, real of that. quick, mm-hmm. real quick, and this is something I've run into in a couple movies now. And does anyone else have this problem when when Yeardley Smith is is in a film <laughs> from back in this time period? <laughs> Do you not hear Lisa Simpson the whole time. every single time? Dude, the legend yeah. of Billy Jean, the whole movie. Yes, the it's like, why is Lisa Simpson there with a exactly. southern accent? Right. The whole time, every time she opens her mouth, I hear Lisa Simpson. Yes, you are correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I just wanted to say, we reviewed this one all the way back in Horror Movie Podcast episode 19. That was the siege narrative so uh, people want to check that out dave already mentioned his rating for the film what i would like to say about it are our recommendations jay says avoid i say (laughs) rental dave says cautionary rental (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that's hilarious see we don't steer people wrong that often but anyways i'm gonna kind of break my own rule here and i'm sorry I'm not going to go into this at all. I'm just going to recommend it. Everybody knows it. It's not horror. I I hope you were. I was hoping you would. (laughs) Yeah, technically not horror. 1986, stand by me. A must see. Right? Classic. 10 out of 10. Yep. 10 out of 10. And it holds up wonderfully. So, yeah, you whippersnappers out there. So, our listeners who are pretty young, (laughs) which we do have young, we have listeners like in their teens and stuff to this podcast. 
you know, they yeah. probably haven't well, we seen have, it. Look, we have younger than that. We've got we've got like elementary school kids that listen to this. Oh, yeah. wow. they maybe shouldn't watch this movie. Then. <laughs> <laughs> this, that, that's the perfect age to watch this movie. Hey! <laughs> I remember I, I, I my vocabulary increased and not in a good way after watching. Yeah. Stan I remember right. the leeches scene talking oh, about that in like third or fourth grade. Just oh. being like. And yep. all of me and my friends just couldn't stop talking about the leeches. Well, I this, bought this... I bought leeches because of this movie. Yeah, <laughs> that's creepy. Yeah, really weird. <laughs> I mean this this movie for me has uh, marks one of the most surreal and creepiest moments of my life. Uh, I associate with this movie, and uh, I mean just real quick, we're out in California, and I knew nothing about this movie coming out. Okay, this is before the internet. Uh, before anything like that, where you'd get this pre-buzz, I was out in California. We were out uh, visiting my aunt and uncle at the time, um, and we all, we were staying in this one room. And my brother and uh, my brother and I were sharing a room. My father was in there because it was the only one with the TV. The, the Phillies were in town, and they were watching the Phillies Giants game. I was trying to sleep because I was tired, so I was half asleep, and all of a sudden, I heard the tum, 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 you know, like the tune. Oh, yeah. Stand by me. Do it, Dave. I I immediately no, I'm not going any more than that. <laughs> Sorry. But I immediately sat up and looked at the TV because not only did I know, I mean it could have been anything. It could have been an insurance commercial, for God's sakes. Who knew? I not only knew it was a movie, I knew what the movie was about. And I don't know how I knew that. <laughs> I laid awake for hours trying to figure out how I knew what it was about. Now I, and I, to this day, I don't, I don't know, but it's really, it is one of the most surreal moments of my life. And I knew I had to see it because me and my friends would spend our entire summer going through this, this wooded area um, mm. that I used to live in. We would just go out and spend all day out there. Um, and I knew that it was a movie I had to see, but I really don't know how, I don't know how, I, I can't explain it even, even to this day. It's, it's really just a bizarre experience. And that's why, kids, you don't do cocaine. <laughs> when you're 12 years old. Yes. Yeah. Right. right. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. All right. So that's uh, Stand By Me, Must See, I Promise that's You. Cool. Yeah, and you can you can find that just about anywhere. It's always at Walmart in the $5 bin. Buy it yep. right now. Okay. Yes. You will not go wrong. Yes, sir. Okay. So we mentioned this earlier, but 1987 is the next one I have on the list. Creep Show 2. Thanks for the ride, lady. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like this movie. Uh -oh. You don't like this movie? Uh oh. The raft? The raft? You don't like the raft despite the creepy sexual assault element to it? Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. This one this one rubs me the wrong way. It's a, it's this is one of those that just did not work for me the way it probably should have. Okay. Do, would you like to talk about it a little more or not? I mean, I think we discussed this briefly in our horror anthologies episode, but mm -hmm. yeah, it, it does have the potential to be offensive as well. Right. I mean, it's, it does. Yeah, I, I can yeah. see that. Yeah. And, and in fact, we're going to talk about that a little more with thinner. I mean, especially like, you know, watching it um, now, it's like, oh, yikes. OK, so <laughs> but yeah, Creepshow 2, I think Joel mentioned this was on um, HBO quite a bit, right? Yes. Iconic VHS cover right there. <laughs> horror cover on this. Okay. Everybody knows about this horror anthology, Creepshow 2. Okay, guys. Um, now, right here, 
I'm gonna skip over that short film because that shouldn't be on the list. I, I, I've I've wa- I've watched it, and you probably should do that. You so we should skip over it. Okay, okay, I, I will. It's on YouTube. Look it up. It's the Lawnmower Man. Yeah, a suburban nightmare. That's the short film version. Yes, we're not going to talk about that though. Um, 1987 though, a return to Salem's Lot, which is a sequel to the 1979 miniseries. Um, what do you guys think of this one? I have never seen it. I haven't either. It's one of the few on this list <laughs> mm-hmm. that I have not seen. Josh, have yeah. you seen that? Man, I don't know. I've, I'm like racking my brain. I had to Google it to like see some images from it to see. Well, the poster looks, I mean, I think. Yeah, the uh, poster, I mean, it's, it's very similar to the original. Yeah, very similar. So I think I, that was the issue too, is maybe as a kid, I seem to have this vague recollection of seeing the video box for it even. Yeah. And being, conf- even though I hadn't seen the first Salem's Lot at that point, being confused as because the both look so similar. I don't know. I remember being very confusing. So. I remember, I'm looking at it now, and I was a little excited. I saw Larry Cohen directed it, and then I look up, and it's listed also. Uh, it has horror, thriller, but also comedy. Ooh. Yikes. Hmm. Yeah. And Rob Lowe is not in this one. <laughs> right. Right. That's different. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I haven't seen this one either, and so I think this is the first one of the night that has stumped all four of all us. of us. This so. looks like Mr. Boogity. I wonder if this was uh, awesome. Boogity Boogity. Yeah, Boogity Boogity. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if this was inspired by the success of Mr. Boogity. Maybe. Was Richard Mazur in this one? Please tell me he was in this one. No, he wasn't. Okay. Well, Mike Moriarty was. <laughs> so, listeners, if you have seen a return to Salem's Lot from 1987, tell us what you thought in the show notes or for this episode. Seen, or if you've seen uh, Bride of Boogity. <laughs> right i know <laughs> seriously he does like the, the vampire guy in this really does look like mr boogity i'm not joking about mm-hmm. that i totally agree actually <laughs> yeah and in fact as i look up his um his picture here the photo of him in the makeup that looks very familiar to me so anyways whatever moving on uh here's another breach of the rules <laughs> not horror but i would just like drop your role you're not gonna follow it <laughs> I, I love i love i would just love to warmly recommend the running man from 1987 i freaking yeah. love that movie i watched it like a hundred times um anyways not really and, and, and richard dawson got to play himself in it <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's awesome okay now we're gonna bring we up... have not yet Go talked ahead. about richard bachman i don't know if we want to wait this might be an interesting time yeah, to talk sure about richard no that's a good point yes yeah but i guess because Stephen, because he was feeling stephen king was what a little oversaturated at that point i mean i was wondering why was this early was this an early writing of yes that? Is that why he yes. did it okay yeah the so what i had are. heard is that that king was limited to release one book per year and he had more work than that um i've also heard that the film that the books that were bachman were a little more cynical than the king's books but i can't Mm -hmm. really wrap my head around that aspect of it you know not being as well versed in the books as i am but um but yeah this was so for those who don't know stephen king had a pen name of richard bachman that he would release other uh you know Books under when he didn't release it as as his own name and the Running Man was one of those. Um, he had done Rage, The Long Walk, Roadwork, The Running Man, Thinner, which we'll talk about later. Yes, and Mis- Misery was intended to be a Richard Bachman story, but was not. The Regulators and Blaze was the last of the Richard Bachman releases. But the thing that is specific to the Running Man is that um, King fought to get. Richard Bachman's name in the credits for <laughs> the Running Man movie, 
as opposed to Stephen King. Uh, that was not always the case with other works like Thinner. And, mm-hmm. and I would like to add to this conversation, and I cannot um, verify the truthfulness of this, but um, I believe it was my dad, because my dad tried to actually explain this to me, this whole Bachman thing, because I was very confused when he was telling me, oh, it's a Stephen King book, but it says Bachman. And I asked him, and I don't know if my dad had the correct information, but um, the rumor was, or what, what we understood was that he he wanted to see if he could still sell books under that name like even though it's not his name because because he gets to the point where it's like anytime he'd release something his stephen king people just bought it and he he wanted to see if he could still put out quality work that people would purchase on a on a large scale because of the strength of the work rather than just recognition of his name i don't know really that that's a that's a rough life huh yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Right. But the name on it just sells millions of copies. What a pain in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> it so, just makes you doubt yourself, right? According to Wikipedia, because King had dedicated several of his early books, Rage, The Long Walk, Road Work, and The Running Man, to people close to him that knew him, um, that was one of the elements. There was the link between the two was made by a Washington, D.C. bookstore clerk named Steve Brown. He noted the similarities between King's writing styles and the style of Bachman. He located publishers' records at the Library of Congress, which included a document naming King as the author of one of Bachman's novels. Brown wrote to King's publishers with a copy of the document he had uncovered and asked them what to do. Two weeks later, King telephoned Brown personally and suggested he write an article about how he discovered the truth, allowing himself to be interviewed. At the time of the announcement in 1985, King was working on Misery, which he had planned to release as a Bachman book. And then, of course, this entire story became the basis for The Dark Half, where Mm -hmm. that character, Thad, is outed as being secretly behind the books of George Stark. Mm -hmm. So he actually took this experience and wrote a movie about it where he has this darker half that he goes to when he writes some of his novels. Um, So we can talk about that more when we get to the dark half. But See, I would always think that the story of the guy putting the pieces of the puzzle together to figure it out has potential as a story yeah. in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, At least the other half of the story. Yeah. Yeah. The dark half. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> moving <laughs> onward and upward. Um, I believe the next one on the list is uh, Horror Big Guns to me. This is a um, mm-hmm. 1989 Pet Cemetery. I'm going to tell you something right now. <laughs> See, I, I, Josh, Josh was tempting me so bad because I have talked about this a lot. This is one of my all-time favorite horror films because to me, and I still feel this way, guys, if you asked me, what's the scariest horror film to you, Jay of the Dead? It's Pet Cemetery, And what I've said many times, and Joel, maybe, I don't know if you know the episode, um, but for me personally, the best I think of... Forgotten Flicks, episode 83, back from 2012, it looks like. Yeah, it was way... Yeah. We also covered it... I think we've done it a couple times, Jay. <laughs> yeah. Because because I think we also covered it on... What did you say, 83? Is that the one you had? Yes. Yeah, I also... Uh, uh, from 2014, we did a bonus episode. I'm sorry, it was... It was uh, yeah, it was episode 19, I think, was going to be the one that uh, Jay came on. So we talked about it there as well. Yeah. And when I remember, Joel, because you asked me about it, I think I recorded this segment 
about yes. it. And um, yeah. that, that's what I'd like to refer people to, especially just because I, I spent a lot of time like um, just kind of researching my thoughts on it because my argument is, which I won't go into here, we'll save it for Joel's podcast there, but this has like just about every element of horror. It has so many aspects of horror monsters, horror scenarios, psychological, um, physical. I mean, it's just an incredible film. I mean, for in terms of a horror film, this is like all-encompassing. It, it's it's one of the great horror films to me. Yeah, and and it really is like what happens if uh, a person you love becomes a monster. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know how to, how do you handle that? And I think uh, this movie shows that. Um, in a very extreme situation, mm-hmm. um, you know, as it gets later in the movie and, uh, does so very well. It is, uh, it is, it is in, in my top tier as well. Uh, did you see it at the theater when it came out, Jay? I sure did. In fact, um, uh, it took me twice though, because we, uh, the people I, I went with my cousin and she had to leave. She got too scared and too upset. Yeah. So we left and wow. then I had to go back and watch it another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My dad took me to see this and I remember he had told me that the book had really freaked him out. And I think I, this is another one where I read the book after I saw the movie and it just, it, it was phenomenal. And, and I remember, I feel like this too is the first time I went to a theater because I was about 13 years old and I saw a movie where I felt like, yeah, this is a horror movie. I mean, I had seen horror movies on video, mm-hmm. but where I was going to an actual movie theater and sitting down and, and watching an actual, because the moment that, that, that Pascal is sort of brought in after he's had his little situation happen without going into uh, spoilers, it, it, it just, from that moment on this, the, the trauma and the emotional, <laughs> It's like, it's like emotionally violent. It's just, it, it's, it's so upsetting. It hurts me. Yeah, it does. But you know, but yeah, here's what's weird. It's never unwatchable. It's never, it Mm-mm. never feels mean spirited at any point. And, and I honestly, I attribute a lot of that to Mary Lambert, the director. Yeah. I just think, I think she did a fantastic yeah. job with balancing out a lot of the issues that I think in a lesser filmmaker's hands, they, it just felt exploitative and just maybe even a little skeezy. And it just, they, they never, never went there. It always felt tastefully done, but just disturbing as hell. Well, you and I, Joel are scared to death of Zelda. I can't even oh, talk God. about it. I can't Rachel! <laughs> stop it. <laughs> stop Rachel. it right now. I will hang you up with Sky. Um, <laughs> Uh, what about this one? Just wait, feed, feed me porridge as I'm saying it, and I'll start coughing it all over you. If you okay? get to do one, I get to do one. I get to do one too. Sometimes dead is better. How about that? Like so, a piece of ticket tape coming off a carpet. <laughs> Anyways, this is, uh, to me, this is Stephen King's. Uh, Oh, I don't know if I should say that because because we you say it's best you're gonna say it's best horror. No, 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 no. I was say. gonna say number maybe third best, but now I I have to reassess all that. Maybe at the end of the next episode, maybe we'll do a top five if we can bring ourselves to do it. But I'll say something controversial. I say yes, The Shining is the classic, right. You know, art film. I get it. To me, Pet Cemetery as a scary experience is even more effective to me. Oh. Oh, yeah. okay. Ooh, I mean, Shining is scary. Shining scares me, but Pet Cemetery to this just there's certain moments of that movie 
that just scare the hell out of it's me. It's my all-time scariest, period. Josh and Dave, what do you guys say about this one? No, I... I, I <laughs> Josh is like, yeah, it's, it's all right. When did you watch it last, Josh? Um, It's been since, like, high school. I don't think I've seen it since maybe junior high or high school. Okay, but, well, um, homework. It does, I don't remember liking it. Is the thing. Really? <laughs> yeah. What the... <laughs> awesome. But that's that's kind of why I wanted to hear you talk about it, Jay. Now you've you've said you've talked about it a lot, and that's true. It seems you've talked about it twice uh, with Joel and Spooky <laughs> Fix. So you said Retro Movie Geek and Forgotten Flicks. You've talked about it on the weekly horror movie podcast, indeed, episode thirteen. I was not a listener of that podcast. I never heard it. So I, I think I, some of our listeners may be in the same boat. Have never actually heard you talk about Pet Cemetery, and just like you eventually reviewed. Cujo on our horror pets episode, <laughs> although it's a movie you talk about ad nauseum. Yes. I think eventually you owe it to our listeners to cover it here on horror movie podcast, just as kind of a final word, maybe even on the film. Now you got it. I'm suggesting for a long time, we've been talking about Jay of the dead is not scared of little kids. I think, <laughs> I, I think a creepy kid episode is probably overdue okay. on horror movie podcast. Let's bring it. Let's do I'm that. I'm saying that's, I'm just saying yep. I love it. Okay. You oh, got good. it. I, I feel like the gauntlet has been thrown and I will accept <laughs> this challenge. Yes. I, I love it. But Josh, when we do that, will you be uh, revisiting oh, pet cemetery oh, yeah, as well? Absolutely. 100%. I'm okay. all in. Okay, great. And, and I think, and you know me, Jay, I try to like movies when I watch them. So I'm not going to be a curmudgeon <laughs> about it just because I didn't like it before. I really right. try to go in. That is true about you. And, and Joel mentioned this too. I just want to underscore something. Joel referred to the director, Mary Lambert. And, and I, I just want to say, this seems dumb, but it's important to me. I think it's important to highlight. There are not a lot of successful female directors. And the reason I said it seems dumb is because um, on Twitter, I see people say um, female director and then someone else will retort all. Oh, in other words, a director. And it's like, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm just trying to underscore the fact that the industry has predominantly male directors. Here you have a female director who's doing who has done great work. This is a great artistic entry in cinema to me. And so I just, I like to underscore that. Dave, did you have any uh, words about this before we move on? No, I I agree. I think it's a a very scary movie, very creepy. And you're right. There's a lot of different things going on in here. And uh, boy, that one, that that voice that that Joel did reminded me of one. And I was like, ooh, that's (laughs) kind of a chill up the spine. (laughs) <laughs> don't say spine yeah spine a bifida stop it <laughs> I, I can't I can't do that okay no I'm serious okay so because of that damn movie when I walk into my bedroom it's it, no I'm serious it's situated the same way as the bedroom Zelda's bedroom and I am always looking for someone crouched down in the corner gonna run at you. She come running at screwing at you. (sighs) I can't do it. Okay, (laughs) let's move on. (laughs) Okay. Now, I'm just gonna put this out here. I'm not gonna restrict anybody on this podcast. I just wanna say for me, I'm not gonna say much about this right now because we're gonna have a very in-depth episode coming up here in September. But 1990, the miniseries It. Mm. Do you guys, how about we'll say it like this. Do you guys tell people who haven't seen it 
should they watch it before seeing the new film? Yes, because I think if you probably see it after you see the new film, it's going to feel even more dated than it probably already does. And certainly see the first half. The first half is the superior half by a long shot. Right. Right. Yeah, and again, like I mentioned with uh, Salem's Law, I actually really enjoy the cut-down version of this, where it's not in two halves, but intercut. It's much more watchable. Oh, I've never watched that version. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's It's it's worth checking out. How how does one differentiate or find the particular versions, Josh? Do they both come on a disc, or what's the story? Uh, I don't know. I I, I should have probably had that in front of me, but I think you just look at the runtime. Right. Yeah, the only DVD I've ever seen is where it's broken in into two parts. Uh, so I wonder. I always wonder: is that an official right. or is that is that a fan made thing? Because that sounds interesting. No, it was it was on TV. Um, I'll I'll double check really quick. Uh, TV okay. Cause, series. Because while you're checking on that, just if I may say, because uh, I had um a VHS tape of it which was one VHS and I had actually seen in the past and people can call me a liar, but this is how I remember <laughs> it. At least I had seen the, the, the double VHS. So maybe one was just missing, but it didn't say, you know, um, tape one or anything. So I don't know if that's an example mm-hmm. of this, but I see on IMDb, it says uh, three hours and 12 minutes is the runtime. Um, so uh, Stephen King's, it was released on VHS on Laserdisc in 91. The original VHS was on two cassette tapes, one for each part. Mm-hmm. The VHS and Laserdisc release feature it as originally aired in 1998. It was re-released on VHS, this time on one cassette tape. Oh, Jay of the Dead. The film, was later <laughs> Sorry. On DVD. the film was later released on DVD in 2002 and on Blu-ray in 2016. Both the DVD and the Blu-ray feature an edited version of the film, which hmm. presents it as one movie with a DVD version cropped to widescreen. Well, that sucks. I had the DVD version. I don't remember ever watching that version. <laughs> What's wrong with you, Joe? Uh, I don't know. Now, don't there know. Are my, I will just say minor spoilers for the movie It if you haven't seen it or the television miniseries It or the book, I suppose. The suicide scene at the end of part one is shortened. The hotel scene from part two is missing. And the graveyard scene toward the beginning of part two is also slightly shortened to remove the on-screen credits that originally appeared. Mm. The intro plays once, and the new set of end credits were created for this version. So Mm. there you have it. Um, If you see it, this will probably be the version you see anyway. Mm-hmm. Were you guys, were you were you guys there when it originally aired? I remember I remember I was I was anticipating that for I feel like it was weeks beforehand and I remember I watched it with my mom and both halves right when they aired. Uh back back when you had to be in front of your TV unless you wanted to set your VCR up to record it, <laughs> which never worked. Never worked anyway. You'd miss part of it. Yeah. Always <laughs> cut off early cuz it, it was on uh, Pacific Time your VHS player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember Pennywise the Clown haunting my dreams as a child. I saw this pretty young. This was a sleepover type of movie, and um, this was a f- movie that just freaked the living crap out of me. Now, I I understand now as an adult that it is not that great, but I did not know that as a child. Mm-hmm. I, I that never once occurred to me that this wasn't that great. This scared the crap out of me. So, I I am personally a little upset that Tim Curry. They just didn't recast him, Curry, in the <laughs> Right. I don't know how you do better than that. I know. But yes. I, I have heard from people who love the book that it is actually not exactly like the Pennywise in the book. So maybe they're going more 
traditional with this. I'm not it's sure. not, but his portrayal of Pennywise is why that miniseries had such an impact. Yes. It stood the test of time, hands down. Agreed. That's why. And let's yeah. let me just be frank here. Yeah. Tim Curry, even without makeup, kind of freaks me out. <laughs> I'm yeah. just saying. Yeah. But anyway. All right. Uh, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot more about that here in September. So please uh, stick with us for that. Also, in 1990, we had another um, horror anthology, Tales from yes. the Dark Side, the movie here. I know, D- I know, I know. Dave knows this. Dave, do you know what Tales from the Dark Side was originally supposed to be? Unless I misread what I read. <laughs> uh, Creep Show Three, I think. Yes. Yep. <laughs> nice, Doctor Shock brings it. <laughs> Bring in the trivia. <laughs> now, the the part that Stephen King did for this with the cat, I think, was my yeah. might be my favorite. Yes, section, um, you know, segment in this film, the cat yes. from hell. Yeah, you guys, yes. you yep. mentioned that on the the horror pets, right? That that was a must right. see. Okay, it is intense. Yes, nice. All right, so yeah, the premise: a young boy tells three stories of horror to distract a witch who plans to eat him. There you go. Yep. Let's do did it. You guys, if you guys, uh, I obviously Dave's seen it. Have uh, Josh and Jay? Have you guys seen it? Yeah, I really like. I really like uh, Tales from the Dark Side. I can't remember if we touched on this during our we did old school anthologies. I'm sure we did. We yeah, did briefly, but. and 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 I have. I don't remember it at all. Like not yeah, one. I went saw the theater. I don't think. I don't know that I've seen it. I feel like I probably have, but I know I went and saw it at the theater. And I and I to this day, Cat from Hell stuck with me, and to some degree, uh, a lot. Whatever the number is, the one with Christian Slater in it, that one always stuck with me. And the fact that uh, Blondie was the witch—that was always another thing. That <laughs> oh yeah, Blondie. My dad had her vinyl record, right? The not her, um, the band. Yeah, the band. The actually. band Blondie. But, but, but they, yeah. the entire band plays the witch. Yes, the entire <laughs> band. It was really weird. But no, no, no. But the the chick. <laughs> See, I'm I'm envisioning the chick on the Blondie album. Do you guys know that album? It's white and it has a a woman lying on a like a Corvette hood. No, not offhand. So Are you thinking of Madonna? No. Is that a Madonna album? No, no, no. Like, <laughs> so Debbie Harry, right? I, I don't yeah, know. She kind of she kind of looks like the chick on that Blondie album. I'll have to find it and see. Anyways, well, she she is the singer. Of Blondie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. that must yeah. be her. <laughs> I feel like you two, are, yeah. you, you two are arguing the exact same point. Right, right. I'm like, that That must be why she looks are like... Are you talking about... I, well, well I, I don't just don't know what album you're talking about. You're saying she's laying on a white hood? Okay, let me see. It, it's like <laughs> Blondie album. I love Blondie, but I don't covers. remember that it's, album cover you're uh, give me, Give me a and second. prove the cultural impact that Tales from the Dark Side... Uh, it, it is remarkable, actually. <laughs> I'm just trying to look through these here. How stupid is this? It's not even coming up. Um, so, yeah, man, I wonder if it's a Cars cover that I'm thinking of. Um, uh, do, do you? And, nobody knows and that's this. Not, and that's not Debbie Harry. Are you sure this isn't a Sinbad movie? <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a weird... Um, so, so let me see. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'll, okay, we can move on. But um, but I'm. And I might have I might have mentioned this during our anthology. That I can't remember, but um, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, marked the uh, big screen debut of Julianne Moore. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, 
I'm so. Like, Jay's still looking up. I'm so out. mad. Still trying to find I'm out. so mad. Right He's in full OCD mode. We are. Uh, not gonna I am. I am. I'm sorry. It's I turned out to be something like Engel, uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. Oh, I hope it is. I yeah. I I can't hold us up too long on this, but I will find that thing at some point because you will be proven right. And Please well, leave I'll, all this in because it's hilarious to me. Yeah, and I'll I'll send it to you. Um, and when I get the picture, anyways. Okay, so we, we already talked about that. By the way, I, I should mention about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. So, the cat from hell, right, is the Stephen King short story adaptation. The other two stories in that are not connected to Stephen King. We should just mention it. Okay. Can I just say, mm-hmm. thus far, I feel like I, I have completely been proven wrong and talked myself out of this notion that most Stephen King movies are bad. I feel like almost everything we've talked about is awesome, it, it, hmm. at least in its own way. Yeah. Right. Even if they're not, even if they're not perfectly made films, there is something about them that makes them worth checking out, at least. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Yes. Okay. I was still trying to find that. <laughs> I just, I just this can't. Be like a four-hour episode of Jay just going. Oh. I know, and it's terrible. Okay, and just as long as you leave it all in the edit for the listeners, because they no, they will <laughs> appreciate this. They will they hate me it. by the end of that. Oh, it's so funny! It's so funny. well. Maybe so. one of them will know what it is actually, so that will be great. But anyways, okay, let's move on. And now we're ready for Gilman Joel's feature review of Graveyard Shift. Stephen King invites you to venture deep inside the caverns below the old Bachman Mill. You're not thinking about going down in there. Where a secret lies long forgotten by any living soul. Just ain't no job worth this. The workers suspected. You can't put me down there. You can't put anybody down there. I know things. The owner denies it. What did happen to the fellow that started this job? It didn't work out. And everyone fears it. This place is infested. That might be the understatement of the year. Broken? Because one by one, it will devour them all. We're like shrimp and then all you can eat salad bar and that thing ain't stopping. All right. Graveyard shift from 1990. I will give you the very brief IMDb summary. In a very old textile mill with a serious rat infestation, the workers discover a horrifying secret deep in the basement. And that pretty much is this movie in a nutshell, actually. That's, that's pretty pretty accurate. Uh, it was directed by Ralph S. Singleton. Now, for some reason, when his name came up uh, during the credits, I recognized it. There was something, I was like, why, why do I know the name? And I was trying to think, okay, was he the guy that did, uh, did Demon Knight? Remember the Tales from the Crypt movie? And if I'm not mistaken, that was, I think, Ernest R. Dickerson. So then I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's the middle initial thing that's throwing me. Um, and so he actually has worked way more as a production manager and as a producer. And he was, in fact, to tie it back around to Pet Cemetery, he was an associate producer on Pet Cemetery and a producer on Pet Cemetery 2. So I'm thinking that cool. must be why his name rang a bell for me or, and I, and I was an avid Fango reader. So I'm sure that they, you know, they, I remember them having coverage of graveyard shift in Fangoria. So I, I'm fairly certain that might be why I remembered him, but this is actually, at least according to IMDb, his only 
feature credit. And the only other directing credit he has is a, a few episodes of Cagney and Lacey, I believe. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, it stars, now this is where it gets interesting to me, is it stars David Andrews. Now David Andrews, I knew right off, just boom, Cherry 2000 with Melanie Griffith. You guys remember that one, Tim Thomerson? Mm. Uh-huh. Anyone? 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 Yep. Okay. <laughs> it's a classic. Uh, it, it also starred <laughs> Kelly Wolf, who my wife recognized. My wife never, I, I, for years, I would say say Ed Harris to my wife, and she'd be like, "Give this look." I'm like Ed Harris, you know, the abyss. And I'd go through this whole list of movies, <laughs> and then finally, for some reason, I'd always go Pollock. And for some reason, that she, oh yeah, that I'm like, oh, for the love of God. So, uh, so Kelly, <laughs> Kelly Wolf, though, we're watching. She goes, oh, I know her. I, I remember her. I'm like, what do you remember her from? She was in a mid 80s, like 1985 after school special that also starred uh, Kira Sedgwick. And I think it was called Cinderella. And it was essentially this modern takeoff on Cinderella. And I guess Kelly was one of the evil stepsisters and Kira Sedgwick was Cinderella. So that was news to me. Um, but it also has Stephen Mocked, who uh, I know Wolfman knows who Stephen Mocked is because he is the dad in Monster Squad, the cop yes. dad. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, what's that? Who? Huh? Oh, no, I, Josh, I thought Josh was saying something. I don't think so. Josh, you still there? I said, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Skype was pooping out on me a little bit because I heard like a. That. Well, that was Dave. Oh, okay. So, Dave, do you have something to say about Stephen Mocked? <laughs> I went, I said, yep. <laughs> this is quality <laughs> podcasting here. Jay, Jay, you got some editing to do, my friend. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. So, Stephen, Stephen Mocked plays Warwick. He is the guy who runs the mill. Now, I don't think they ever established that he owns the mill, so it's sort of weird that his obsession with bringing it uh, up to code or at least giving the illusion that it's brought up to code uh, uh, is, is sort of interesting. But the whole the whole movie also features Andrew Deboff in a very early role, of course, from Lost and Wishmaster series. Right. Vic Polizos, who is, I know, in Harlem Nights, and he always sort of plays like a heavy gangster type guy. Uh, the one, the only, Brad Dorif. Oh, plays the yes. exterminator Cleveland. He is. Does that man not have the most intense, <laughs> rage-filled, oh, sla- yes. slash teary eyes you've ever seen in your freaking life? Yes. Seriously, it's amazing. And and like every scene he's in, I don't know if he's gonna kill the guy across from him <laughs> or if he's just gonna kill a rat. I don't know. It is. <laughs> <laughs> he's mesmerizing those freaking and there's a moment where he's telling a story not to completely divert this thing from the actual review but there's a moment where he's telling a story and he's talking about vietnam and and what supposedly what they they did with the rats and 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 people's bodies and and just it's very disturbing and as he's telling it he's not crying he's not really emoting but he's so intense this single tear is coming down his face not like he's crying but it's like the rage and and just hate is so pent up in him <laughs> that it's it's expressing itself through it. it's bizarre it's amazing so it's, it's he's something else yeah mm-hmm. he really is he's phenomenal so but it, but as a bunch of other you know supporting cast members and it, it essentially it's the the inciting incident I, I guess is there there's this giant machine they call it the picker it's kind of like a mechanical cotton gin type thing it's in the basement you get the distinct depression that it's over 100 degrees down there even though it's in maine it's the summertime and there are a lot of rats now i don't know about you guys and no offense to any of our listeners if you're a fan 
Okay. <laughs> but I am not. <laughs> I am straight up. I am Indiana Jones's dad when it comes Henry to Henry Jones. That's exactly I, I got, what I was going to yeah. say. <laughs> I have the nice. Henry Jones syndrome. Yes. So, so needless to say, right off the bat, this movie is going to get me because this guy rats everywhere. And so this guy is kind of, I mean, let's be honest, he's kind of a prick. He's, he's essentially uh, <laughs> taking the rats, holding them by the tail, dropping them in the picker. Um, and he is summar- something happens. I don't want to give it away. Something happens and he is uh, summarily dispatched. Now that is, you know, it sets the whole movie in motion because this, I, I guess, if you're to follow the story, uh, leads us to have a situation where OSHA is getting involved. Obviously, you would hope, and because the way he's dispatched involves the picker, and they have to put a crew together to go during the graveyard shift to clean out the basement. Now. I'm not exactly sure what cleaning out the basement has to do with taking just proper basic <laughs> precautionary measures to prevent your uh, workers from falling into the picker <laughs> because they're really not even in the same plate technically. I mean, the way I mean, it's kind of in the basement, but that's never really a, a an element. It's like they have to go through and clean the pick uh, the, the basement because there's rats and there's a bunch of chairs everywhere. But that's you know, what I mean, like it's never really properly explained why cleaning up the basement necessarily other than the rat problem is going to necessarily prevent another person from falling in the picker, but I digress. So (laughs) that's what sets it in motion. But, but the, but the primary focal point is this character Warwick played by Stephen mocked, who his son, interesting trivia note is uh, Gabriel mocked who plays Harvey Specter on suits. Fantastic show. If you haven't seen it. And he himself has also made appearances on the show and he plays a great bad guy. My wife thought he was John Bernthal, uh, AKA Shane from the walking dead and the Punisher in the new daredevil series, because young Stephen mocked, if his nose was a little bit more pounded in, he definitely looks like a young John Bernthal. And he has that same intensity <laughs> and he is, he is sort of the angry boss with the like heavy, like ridiculously, everything is ever, you know, literally everything is sometimes dead is bad. It's it's the main accent, just completely overdone. It is wonderful. And he, of course, give, give a crap less about his employees and whether or not they get killed by rats. So he puts this group together. Uh, Dave Andrews, like I said, plays John Hall. He's a drifter. He just needs a job. He's, quote unquote, the college boy. He's called that many times throughout the movie. So, you know, he is, in fact, a guy who went to college who now works in a mill. So <laughs> he uh, is, you know, takes this gig for whatever reason. He, just, he wants a new start for some reason. We know his wife has died, but we don't get a whole lot of backstory from him. So we bas- he basically just wants this job. So, of course, we lost the first guy who was on the picker. So the college boy, he has to be put on the picker. And, <laughs> and he, of course, has this predilection to taking a slingshot with empty Diet Pepsi cans and knocking rats off of ledges. Product placement. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> so, so, and then for some, and for some sort of unknown reason, other than that, he's a college boy. He is uh, not treated well by the fellow employees, Andrew Devoff and Vic Polizos are kind of jerks to him. And, uh, you know, it's this whole thing. He ends up kind of forming a semi-romantic thing with Kelly Wolf. It's never really expanded on. And, and at the end of the day, here, here's the deal. Graveyard Shift is a movie I remember when it came out. This is the the height of my, you know, I'm in, I think the 90, I would have been probably in ninth grade. I'm definitely getting heavy into horror, Fangoria, reading every issue. And I remember, I I even think with Graveyard Shift, 
I had in my bedroom in high school when I lived with my dad, an entire wall was a mirror. A uh, whole other story we'll have to talk about sometime is the bachelor we bought the house from. The, the entire ceiling of my dad's room, a mirror. We'll talk about that later, though. Uh, and, nice. and so this, so this entire mirror wall. I, Joel, I had heard you say that before, but without the caveat that you guys bought it from someone else. So I, I, I just read, I had heard you say. I, 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 yeah, my dad's room. <laughs> and when we moved in, jacuzzi yeah. in his bedroom, there was a jacuzzi in the bedroom with a mirrored ceiling. This yep. guy liked a party. Yeah, I, I, I've heard this on Retro Movie Geek. You talked about yeah. this shady people uh, you bought this from. Yes, it, it, well, it was very bizarre. So that's a whole other story. So, so anyway, um, but the entire wall, and I've talked about this before. I had a horror collage, and it was all things from Fangoria. Obviously, at the time, I didn't care about you know preserving. Okay, dude, I just had the scared out of me. I'm not you. I'm sitting here in a cat just jumped on the windshield oh, oh my man. god the cat from hell <laughs> cat jump scares they do work everybody right did it, there did it shriek did it shriek or did it just jump you okay are you still alive he's dead he's dead he hung up he died <laughs> joel <laughs> uh, well that's the end it was of- nice knowing joel that's the end of retro movie <laughs> yeah. he's, he's gone forever <laughs> That is creepy, right? That is creepy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, really, what can a cat do to you? I mean, we, we've had a Horror Pets episode. Well, we all know that the cat is the is the fake out before the real killer. That's shows. true. That's right. Either that or it stole his breath, which is quite possible. Yeah. Oh, don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? Anyways. Can you hear me now? There you are. Welcome. Okay. Okay. I heard everything you guys were saying. I thought you were messing with me. <laughs> no, we thought you died. <laughs> That's actually kind of perfect. I totally didn't time that was... intentionally. Uh, no, but the cat thing really happened. So uh, <clears throat> let me let me back up now. Okay. Now that I'm not dead. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> graveyard Jim. So I I had an entire wall covered in in horror clips from Fangoria, and I had stuff from even Graveyard Shift on there. So I was very aware of this movie. And when it came out, I didn't see it at the theater, although, interestingly, I thought it bombed. It said it opened number one, its its opening weekend on October 26, 1990. (laughs) I don't even remember it being in the theater. Mm -mm. So I do remember renting it, though. Did you guys, did any of you see it in the theater? Mm -mm. No. No. Okay. Okay, Okay, it's another important question. Have any of you seen it? (laughs) Honestly, you know, I'm not sure I have. I don't think I, I don't have. I'm not sure if I have either. It's on okay. my list. I just bought it recently. Okay, yeah, okay, I, me too. <laughs> it, okay, it's here's the thing. It's interesting from the standpoint. Uh, King's backstory is he actually worked at a mill for at least I know at least one summer, maybe longer. Uh, I don't remember if it was like a way to get money to get through college or what it was, but it was definitely in early part of his life. And and this movie, I is which is based on a short story from the Night Shift collection which also has Children of the Corn in it. And it, it, the, the short story, I've read it. It's been a while, but I have read it. It is different. I think it, it, it the, one of the biggest differences, mild spoiler alert for the short story, there's a lot di- different variations of, a, of sort of rat monsters in it. In this movie, be, it, not that so much that it was just low budget, because it doesn't necessarily feel super low budget. It just, it has one particular creature. It is definitely a beastly freak situation and it's it's weird i watched this movie last night and i came away thinking 
why do I like this movie? <laughs> I, I, it was weird because it's not a great movie. It is uneven. Characters are motivated. You don't even know why. Like, why is he? Why? Why is he crazy now? I don't. What happened? I don't understand. Why is he suddenly turning into like? Is it Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now? Why is he mm-hmm. turning into <laughs> this just psychotic guy on a, on a vendetta to kill this thing? I don't get it. Uh, but yet. It somehow works, and I think part of it is the quality of the, most of the actors working there, and there is some decent gore effects. Uh, it's all practical, and of course, since this is pre-CGI, and they are trying to create a certain, and you get this from the trailer, that there's more than just the rats that are at play here. The the creature in question, when it's shown, it's it's definitely a buildup. I think somebody compared it to the Ridley Scott way of doing things. You know, you've got the alien where you just show little tiny hints of it as you go along. And you don't know, did they do it that way because they were trying to build suspense? Or is it because they really didn't like the quality of the animatronics and they were they were trying to hide it? Um, when it's on screen, there are times it does look a little hokey. Other times it's very effective uh, just from the goo and, and gore dripping from it. But but there were a couple like decent little moments, uh, but but overall, especially the last act, it's just one of those movies where you're like, what the hell just happened? I, I don't understand. <laughs> okay. How did we did we just miss an entire scene that should have been here? Because why is this character now doing this this thing? Um, but again, as a B movie, as a just a fun goofy horror film that actually I don't know this was intentional but if you go into it almost seeing it as a really dark comedy in a way especially with Brad Dourif's character because he is very reminiscent of another movie that came out around the same time which is Arachnophobia the John Goodman exterminator character Mm -hmm. if you recall Mm -hmm. from that film it's very reminiscent of that like a more violent version of that character but which by the way was released on this day that we're recording arachnophobia today is the really? anniversary of arachnophobia oh wow, wow. i like that hey I, I have a fondness for that movie okay so it's uneven but the i i don't know have you ever just had that happen where you, you're watching a movie you know it's not a great movie you know it's severely flawed and yet you're entertained you're yes. not you know completely pissed off because they're just violating everything. It, it just, if for some reason it still had enough fun to it. And I feel as if it was a movie that it, its heart was in the right place. The sets and the atmosphere that are created are very effective. The mill they used apparently was an actual really old mill from the 1800s for certain scenes. And uh, they called it the, it's called the Bachman mill. So a nice little tongue in cheek reference. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also, also called a couple other, cute references uh one of the characters claims to be from castle rock and there is a scene where a guy in a diner is reading the book ben which if you know about willard and ben Mm -hmm. it's about a guy who can communicate with rats so so it's uh (laughs) it's not a great movie it's a movie i could definitely see if it's one you watched as a kid you would love and it would totally be cnd there there's it is 100 that and maybe that's part of what it is for me because i was middle school going into high school around that time or in your ninth grade ish and so i might be a little bit of that but going back and watching it i really only remembered a couple of key things about it and one in particular by the way is the really weird end song that plays over the entire end credits which is essentially just clips of people talking lines from the movie we're this weird kind of dance beat behind it <laughs> and, and you hear Stephen Mock going 
the graveyard shift. And they kind of work it into the beat. It's really bizarre. Wow. It's kind of like a rap song, but not really. Hmm. So, uh, but that was like one of the big things I remembered. So that should tell you how memorable it was. Um, <laughs> but, but the, but there are a couple moments where uh, the, the, you know, I don't want to say what exactly happens or who it happens to, but there's a, a character where a part, an appendage is gnawed on. And when he, jerks it away like chunks go flying <laughs> it was really it's like wow that actually pretty nasty that was, that was good, that was good <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it has like enough of that kind of stuff going on and it's weird enough and just this sort of like almost like a little oddity in in how it's uh it's it's a movie that most no one i have ever heard of talks about when they talk about Stephen king movies they love i almost never hear somebody go graveyard shift that was great i love graveyard shift no one ever right. says that so i don't know if that's sort of the the, the part of me that's trying to be sympathetic to it. I'm just saying for me, just this is Joel talking. It is a 6.5. It is a strong rental. If you are a Stephen King fan slash practical effects slash Brad Dura fan, if you are none of those things, then you probably would make it a low priority rental. Cause safe to assume you're at least a horror fan so you'd be down for checking something out right. um, but but it's not perfect by any stretch it is not a great film but it is a watchable serviceable film with some you know over the top acting it's definitely scene chewing but from the main players it is uh, well executed enough and Brad Dourif by himself is worth the price of admission so uh, of that is what I give Graveyard Shift a 6.5 and say it is a, a high priority rental if you are a fan Oh, and I will say a, of Killer Rats as well. If you if you like Killer Rat movies, also <laughs> rent it. Well, of course, Mulberry Street. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, Joel, your emphasis on the phrase or the town Castle Rock reminded me of speaking of CND. I, I was instantly transported back to my childhood, thinking of Fraggle Rock. I don't know <laughs> what. what <laughs> down yeah, down Fraggle, Fraggle Rock. Rock. Right. Yeah, <laughs> down to Castle Rock. Uh, uh. <laughs> love Castle Rock. Oh yeah. You know, if Doctor Shock lived there, he would be one of the doozers. I bet you. <laughs> He'd be a doozer. <laughs> Doesn't he seem like a that doozer? That is not an insult. That is not an insult. No. Doozers are hardworking people. That's right. That's Do right. I? I remember nothing of Fraggle Rock, so I don't know if I should be offended or not. Okay. Yeah, well, you probably should be. Actually, another yeah. thing. They're these little worker guys. I love them. The, the other thing. Oh that wait, I, yes, yes, yes. The, the little dudes. The okay, proletariat yeah. of the show. The, pro <laughs> the proletariat. proletariat. Yes. That's right. Gotcha. Uh, I will tell you that on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a thirteen percent. So. Ouch. Wow. You know, I went to our listeners to ask them what some of their favorite Stephen King adaptations were, and we'll read those at the end of the show, but Graveyard Shift definitely came up as the least favorite. <laughs> <laughs> that, it doesn't surprise me. Let me put this out. I, I think for me, there probably is a certain, just a modicum of C&D involved uh, because of when I saw it, and, mm -hmm. and like I said, it's definitely not. You guys will watch it and be like, Really? Even six point five, really? Yeah. No, I can, I can totally see that, though. I get it. And and Joel was careful to say at the beginning that that is a nineteen ninety film release. If you're looking up Graveyard Shift on IMDb, for example, you will see a nineteen eighty seven Graveyard Shift, which is like a by director Jerry Cicciaritti. It's like an Italian vampire movie, and that one also has a sequel, Graveyard Shift Two, from nineteen eighty eight. But these are not Stephen King films. They are not. <laughs> that was one little PS. 
And the other little PS, if my uh, I could direct my co-host there to um, the Skype chat photo that I put in there. It, oh no! It is oh, actually we Candy O the car. Oh, I remember that cover because how could you not? Yeah, nineteen oh, seventy nine. Nice. That's what I was thinking of the whole time. It was not Blondie's album. I bet. I bet you were. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it, was the, it was the Cars Candy yes, O. I remember that. Cover. I do remember that. Yeah. All righty then. Let's move into some serious. Oh 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 oh. <laughs> Sorry, that was a <laughs> office <Blanky> space <laughs> reference there. Don't ever do that again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got a couple of important announcements before we jump into our Stephen King coverage. First, the Movie Podcast Network Meetup 2017 event is coming October 14th, 2017 in Salt Lake City, Utah. You can order your tickets now at our Indiegogo page, which you can find at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. I've had a little bit of feedback about things people are confused about, so I just wanted to clear those up really quick. Number one, you are not pledging your support. This event is happening regardless of how the Indiegogo campaign goes. You are simply pre-buying your ticket to the event. And the reason we're doing it through Indiegogo is so that we can have a tiered level to know exactly how big a theater we need to rent. But it is important that you pre-buy your tickets and hopefully pre-buy them soon so that we know because we need to put deposits on these buildings and we want to make sure we get the right size. So if you're thinking about going and you're waiting to see how this campaign goes before you book your tickets, don't wait. The event is happening regardless, 100%. Two, the only official day of the meetup is Saturday the 14th. Yes, we are planning on doing some other fun activities on the 13th and the 15th for those people who were in town but none of that is official and none of it is planned as of now. We just know that we are, there are some things we want to be doing on those days. But what you're buying your ticket to, the official meetup event, is a film screening and a live podcast with the Movie Podcast Network hosts, including, I think, all of the Horror Movie Podcast hosts, all of the Movie Podcast Weekly hosts, all of the Sci-Fi Podcast hosts, most of the Movie Streamcast hosts, the Universal Monsters cast hosts, someone from Retro Movie Geek. Basically, every podcast is going to be represented at this meetup except for GeekCast Live. I can now also announce at this time something I'm super excited about, that Kagan Breitenbach, the composer of the kind of classical arrangement of our HMP theme at the beginning of the show, is going to be providing live music at the MPN meetup event with his Quartet Macabre. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Quartet Macabre and Kagan's work, I highly recommend checking it out. He plays the coolest stuff. You can check him out on YouTube, and I will link to that in the show notes. Remember, our Patreon supporters get a $5 discount, and Liz from the Sci-Fi Podcast has secured us a discount room rate at two Marriott locations in the greater Salt Lake City area. So if you're looking for a hotel, you do not need to stay there. We do not get anything if you do stay there, but she was able to get some discounted rates. Those are listed and linked at our Indiegogo page. So get all of that, including your ticket, at the MPN Meetup Event page at Indiegogo.com, which if you want to link through us, you can at HorrorMoviePodcast.com. We also need to give away the Jaws socks that Dave got at the boardwalk in New Jersey. All you had to do is retweet our post of that episode or regram it if you're on Instagram. Looks like we got about 29 entries in that contest, which is pretty low, so your chances were good. And I'm just going to randomly select one of those people, and the winner is going to be Leanna at Grizzly Gal on Twitter. 
You are the winner of the Jaws Socks. Simply email Jason at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com with your address, and we will get those shipped out to you. Or Dave will, rather. So thank you to Dave for providing that gift for our listeners. And that is it. On with the show. I grew up on a diet of the sort of comic books that kids weren't really supposed to read, like Tales from the Crypt and uh, The Vault of Horror and that sort of thing. One of the earliest stories that I remember my mother reading, my, my brother and I, was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So you see, I was, I was warped from an early age. But when I was a kid, I, I, there was a guy who, maybe the first of the modern serial killers. He was a, a guy named Charlie Starkweather. Right. And I had a scrapbook. I cut out all these clippings of him. And my mother found this scrapbook. It was 57, so I would have been about 10 years old. She said, why are you interested in this guy? And because I was only 10, and what articulation I had then went into the stories, and it really still does, I'm a much better writer than I am a talker, what I was not able to tell her was there was one picture of this young man who killed these people, and what there was in his eyes was nothing at all. I mean, vacant rooms, depopulated planets, there was nothing. And what I was not able to tell her was I need to look out for this guy. I need to know everything about him so that if I ever meet him or anybody like him, I can go around. And in my fiction, when I've created characters like uh, John Rainbird in, in Firestarter or George Stark in The Dark Half, some of the real bad guys, I'm telling myself, reminding myself, look out for these guys. These guys are dangerous and they're really out there. From 1990, one of the great Stephen King films. I think we can all agree. Misery. And yeah, uh, yeah. and I think we all agree on this too. Definitely a horror film. Yes. Yeah, okay. I, well, I would think so. I did not, for some reason I had it in my head that, that you guys didn't think it was a horror film and that you didn't like it. I don't know why. What? what? Oh, no. I saw that when it came no, out. I, I just, loved it every day since. Same. Misery is awesome. Same. Oh, I, definitely Jay. I don't know what. Maybe it's just no. a... Don't do well, that to me. Metropolis, uh, PTSD kind of a thing. But. <laughs> no, well, I understand that, but I'll tell you this much, Josh. Here, this is this proclaims my love for it. So, Misery is a movie at our university that we attended. I would, if I would like have time between class or decide not to go to class, which was rare, I would rent Misery from the library and watch it in the library. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. I'm going to say, and this is bold, this is my favorite Stephen King movie. Wow. I can see, but see, it's not not so bold that it doesn't, it's not like you said Graveyard Shift was. Right. (laughs) That would be bold. Right. I I feel like Misery is a very fair, decent choice. That is, that is a, that's a good choice. It's kind of like what you were saying about Pet Cemetery. for, you know, although Mm -hmm. The Shining is clearly the superior film in from a technical perspective and it is a classic there. I mean, misery is maybe in my top 20 movies of all time. There's something it's about this. Movie. Yes. It's just yeah. right in my wheelhouse. Oh, mm-hmm. so wow. good. And it and takes it, place the in the thing. snow. It is. It, it is <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's it, a big reason that it's in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a thriller for sure. I mean, it's got a lot of thriller elements to it, but because of where it goes and I think the level to which, uh, Paul Sheldon is, is is being kept. It's it's definitely a horror movie in in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I think. And have you any of you read the book? No. Okay. Sorry. Yes. If you okay, 
I, I think anybody it beat me if you need to totally accept that Jay when he's hobbled in the movie in the uh-huh. book what she does to him is worse in a way now the, here back to the visual though what happens to him in the book involves an axe and so it's graphic and it would be gory it'd have been disturbing to watch but let's be honest what they went with <laughs> yes. visually is so much worse. It right. is so bad. Honestly, it's one of those handful of scenes in a movie where I know how it's done. I know it's not his really his leg. <laughs> I know that all of that's true. <laughs> but every time it's ha- about to happen, and it's the buildup. Because like, as I recall, there's music playing. It's just the it's just the way she's it's just almost ritualistically late. Oh, my God. And then every time I flinch, like, I'm going to cover my eyes. And I... I don't, of course, I watch it, but mm-hmm. I just, oh, so effective. So there's an, another example of not like the book, they changed it, but in my opinion, for the better. This probably goes back to the Horror Pals days that I first said this on the air, but to quote myself, <laughs> no, uh, no, one of the things that I've always thought about this film for those who say, and I remember this has just come up in conversations about Misery and, and Silence of the Lambs. For some reason, those are the two movies that everyone fights about whether or not they're horror, Misery and Silence of the Lambs. For me, Annie Wilkes, Hannibal Lecter are two of the scariest Yeah. Movie monsters in cinema history, period. And so, like, I don't think that that, for me alone, that makes it not arguable that they're horror movies. See, and and that's um, I almost wish I had gone first because you kind of answered my question before I even asked it. But um, but good job. You want to go first? No, no, (laughs) no, no, no. no, That's fine. But honestly, uh, so I was going to ask you guys, how do you feel about this? Important question. So the fact that she is clearly like nutty almost to like you know the the words she uses she's almost a silly comedic character yes she is and 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 so she has kathy bates has taken that so far in her performance and the things she says and kind of like the childlike nature where to the extent which she seems harmless um does that does that undercut anything for you or does it make no. it even scarier because it it's like it she's scarier. totally freaking out of her mind? Yes. Okay. It makes it even scarier to me. Yeah. Yep. And, and Josh, I know, I know a guy who like he calls women gals and things like this. <laughs> I do that. Who's the guy? Josh? Because <laughs> I totally do that. You're the guy that I'm talking about. Okay, great. <laughs> Sometimes people who use this old-fashioned language it has a, it has this thing where it disarms you and thinks, you know, you think, oh, gee, golly, you kind of remind me of my grandparents a little bit. But then that's how they get in there, Jay. That's how they sneak in and they slit your throat while you're sleeping. And that's why I'm never having to sleep over at your house. You're such yeah. a well, Jay, cutie Jay patootie, Josh. You cutie patootie. What did you say, Joel? You're a, you're a dirty birdie. Uh, that's right. Isn't that what Andy always she calls dirty him a dirty birdie. birdie. Yeah, that's what she says. <laughs> yeah, that's neat. That's neat, Jill. <laughs> oh my goodness, misery. Yeah, that's a ten out of ten. I don't care yes, what it anybody is. says. Down. Must see, listeners. If you haven't seen Misery yet, for real, just push pause. It's right a now. cinema classic. It's one of the great yeah. movies ever made. No, what, what, however you classify it, if you come back and say it's a thriller, fine. It's one of the great movies ever. It is. And and. And Josh will pay you 20 bucks if you don't <laughs> wince 
at least once when you watch this movie, right, Josh? <laughs> no, no, there's one moment he's winning his 20 bucks. I don't care who you are. <laughs> Joel was the one going on and on about it. <laughs> yeah, really? Wait, shouldn't, I, shouldn't they be betting me? <laughs> okay. Joel will also pay you 20 bucks. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. So that's Misery. We love it, obviously. All right. So there is a film, which is uh, lesser talked about. It's from 1991. Um, I have not seen this. I don't know. I mean, I, I've heard it mentioned before, but it's sometimes they come back. Seen it. Tell it. <laughs> Anybody else? So I don't beat the jerk. Yeah, that- I've seen it too. I don't remember almost anything about it. I, I feel like I talked about this with Greg Amortis or something. Oh. Mm-hmm. It sounds like him. It, it, it's it, Isn't it a TV movie? Yeah, it was a made-for-TV horror film, right? Yes, correct. Okay. It, it's. I remember enjoying it, okay? But again, keep in mind, this is the context of the ninth or 10th grade me that also liked Graveyard Shift. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, it, it, I, the big thing for some reason that always stuck in my head is I remember that it started Tim Matheson. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, did you guys remember the show Dream On that was on HBO starring Brian Ben-Ben? Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The kid who played his son, I think, is in it. I think he is is one of the one of the characters in it, and and that's always stuck in my head for some bizarre reason. Right. And it, it's it's one of those movies that it's not particularly memorable to the point you guys are making, but yet I have this sense that I liked it, that it was not a bad movie. I mean, it was made for TV. I know they had several sequels um, where they did sort of the I still I know what you did last summer variation, where it's all variations right. on sometimes they come back, and it, it's. I would. It's actually one that I look forward to rewatching at some point. It's always I, everyone's yes. all catch it, you know. And it, I think it's in my Amazon queue to you know my watch list to eventually catch. But I, I definitely want to revisit it because again, it has a lot of those Stephen King tropes that make us like Stevie King stories, the whole small town, the fifties vibe, mm-hmm. and, and you know demons from hell sort of sort of thing going on. And I just remember I liked it, but not enough to. But yet I can tell you virtually nothing about the story. So I feel as if I go to watch it again, I see they're going to be like, I'm seeing it again for the first time, right. or it'll be one of those movies like as you're watching, like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. And then it all just kind of pop back into place. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it Joel. So to your point there, um, what it's about, it's about a man and his family returned to his hometown where he is then harassed by teenagers that died when he was yes. a kid. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. I, I, I remember watching this. I can't remember any specifics of it right now. I know it has Robert Russler from Vamp and A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Vamp. Grace Jones. I, love, I, I like Vamp. <laughs> yeah. Grace Jones. How can you go yeah. wrong? Yeah. Um, no, that's cool. And I, I don't know if listeners are picking this up now after hearing the Gill Man for a while, but uh, in the same way that Dr. Shock is like Ephraim Katz's The Film Encyclopedia, Joel is a human internet movie database. It's pretty amazing the connections you make, Joel. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's very impressive. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. Okay, so listeners, let us know what you think of Sometimes They Come Back. All right, here we go, here we go. Now, here here's a real problem in, in this uh, list. From 1992... We have the lawnmower man, but the only thing people say that's carried over is the title. In fact, 
I guess Stephen King sued New Line Cinema to have his name removed. Yep. Because um, I had my cousin. I, I didn't read that little, I believe it was a short story, right? The Lawnmower Man. Yes. My cousin told me the whole thing play by play. Yep. And nothing like nothing. that happens in the film. <laughs> now, I will tell you this. The short film we mentioned earlier, it happens exactly like the, sh- the short story. Oh, it's, okay. It's exactly. It's not necessarily executed well. Right. But right. it is it is very faithful to the short story. And the other thing I'll say, and thanks for um, clarifying that, Joel, that's important to know because I, I actually would like to see a film. I mean, it sounds like a short film concept. I can't even see this being a, f- a feature film, so I could understand maybe why this has all gone down the way it has, but I would like to see it executed well because it is kind of a freaky idea, but um, just for the listeners out there, if you stop at $5 gas station bargain bins like I often do, you can often find at some of the obscure places a, a, a two disc set of the Lawnmower Man from 1992 and Lawnmower Man 2 Beyond Cyberspace from 96. Woo-hoo. Also also known as Job's War. Oh, nice. well oh. done, sir. Look at that. Look what he did. <laughs> Anyways, have you guys seen uh, Lawnmower Man? Or you, do you, I don't even oh, yeah. remember it, to be honest. Yep. What happened? I saw it at the theater. I saw it in high school. I remember nothing about it. It's kind of terrible, right, Joel? It yeah. had Jeff Fahey in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I really loved in the movie Body Parts when Love I was younger. Fahey, yeah. yeah, Metroid so. is a big fan of this movie. Oh, really? So, Metroid is a big Stephen King fan as well. We should say, but I know I know Lawnmower Man is one of his movies he really likes. Wow. I feel I remember liking it again. Consider context of the time, but I also remember thinking, yeah, this is nothing like the short story. In fact, they didn't even bother trying to. You know, sometimes with a short story where it's almost like a vignette, they'll just have a scene that calls back to the short story at least, but there's nothing. I mean, other than the fact that Joe pushes a lawnmower around, there is no connection whatsoever. Mm. And I just remember feeling like it, it had nothing to do with anything, you know, King had created and being confused by that. But at the same time, I do remember liking it. Now that said, especially that, that early nineties virtual reality boom that we had, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I would love to go back to review, visit it probably for the chuckles of the special effects because right. as i recall it does have those really awesome blocky you know the you remember those mind's eye videos that were like the this the kind of the early computer graphic okay. effects and all it was was like this new agey music and you would go through the different designs and things i <laughs> remember that's what the effects were like in this movie and it looks like actually i'm uh, looking at pictures of it now it looks like max headroom from back yeah in the that, day. yes that yep. sort of vibe yep. yeah and it, it looks terrible to be honest but, of course, you know, we're jerks now looking at this from 2017. Back in the day, I mean, maybe this was decent work. Um, eh, it it looks sketchy eh. to me. So. I don't. I seem to even remember back in the day thinking, eh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, maybe not then. But the cover, <laughs> I do like. For some reason, I kind of like the look of the cover art, the poster art on uh, IMDb. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Okay, so that's the lawnmower man. It sounds like we could almost throw that out of the list altogether, but okay. 1992. 1992 was a busy year for Stephen King mm-hmm. adaptations. We have Sleepwalkers. What do you guys I think? will fight any of you if you disparage Sleepwalkers. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I haven't seen Sleepwalkers. <gasps> okay, look. It's not great. It is a flawed movie, and I admit that, but this movie is total C&D for me. 
I love sleep. Hey, I don't know what it is about Mick Garris and Stephen King adaptations. All this is an original screenplay. I, I saw this at the drive-in. I saw this a couple times in high school. I, for some reason, I, I think I probably may or may not have had a thing for uh, Machin Amik, who who is the uh, female star in it. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, I loved this movie when it came out. I have watched it since then, and I can acknowledge it has its problems. <laughs> but I'm with you. I, I like it too. Thank you. It yeah. has Alice Krieg in it, man. Is Krieg yeah. how you pronounce her name? Krieg. I don't know, Krieg. to be honest. <laughs> Krieg. <laughs> but. But this, um, Joel, I will say though, I do hardly remember it. So, but yeah, I, no, I remember fair. liking it back in the day. Yeah. But, oh, Sleepwalkers. It's it's a three dollar rental on Amazon. It's worth that for people to check it out, right? Yeah. Oh, and probably should add the caveat: it may involve mother son love. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> if if you could get past that really creepy <laughs> and Just not maybe. in a good way, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> maybe. mother boy. Yeah. Well, you know. Okay, so that's Sleepwalkers from '92. Yes. Another one from 1992 is Pet Cemetery 2. I saw that when it came out as well, and uh, Mary Lambert directed it. And I uh, will admit this: I've seen it since. Clancy Brown, Edward Furlong, I remember is in that, and uh, it's it, uh, also uh, Anthony Edwards. I think plays uh, Furlong's dad. It's not great. It's it's definitely it's sort of typical the sequel problem where there's a lot of almost callbacks and tone with certain scenes, but it never gets to the level that it needs to to even come close to comparing to the original. As comparing it to Pet Cemetery <laughs> is a complete waste of your time. Don't do that. That said, I find it watchable in a, in that it's a Saturday, you got nothing else to do. It's on you know some channel, and you just want to watch forty minutes of Clancy Brown chewing the scenery. As a big bad sheriff guy, and that is how I approach that movie. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it just fine. I mean, I I don't remember much about it other than I was I I'm a Edward Furlong apologist. If if (laughs) I don't know if there are many of those out there, uh, yeah. And and Clancy Brown definitely is awesome. So yes, yes. Okay, Pet Cemetery Two. There you go. All right, and then also 1992, Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice. So honestly, once we get past the first one, I don't really remember anything about the sequels. Mm-hmm. And I know there are like, what, are there like six of those? Oh, no, I looked it up. I think it's eight. Are they oh, eight my or goodness. Nine? Eight oh, or yeah, nine? It's, like, it's like the howling. It is crazy. They've gone. <laughs> yeah, they've Do they have one called Children of the Corn Marsupials? No, but the see, Children of the Corn 666, Isaac's Return, mm-hmm. which is part six. And then we get up to Children of the Corn Genesis. That was the seventh oh, film. Yeah, then they, re- and then um, they remade it. No, Children of the Corn Runaway is a sequel to the 2011 films. So that's what we had, eight. And then in, ni- and then in 2000-something, I, I, as a TV movie, they did remake it. Jeez. Oh, that's so <laughs> weird. And, and yeah. I see the in Children of the Corn, The Gathering from '96, that even had Naomi Watts in it, for example. Yeah. But but anyways, we, we digress. Sorry, Children of the Corn two though, The Final Sacrifice. I don't remember anything about it, to be honest. I saw it in the theater, and I also don't remember anything about it. Okay, <laughs> so it must have been really good. It was fantastic. A journalist and his son traveled to Nebraska to investigate the mysterious town of Gateland. All right, let's let's keep on trucking. So now we're brought to uh, 1993. Interesting, and this is a movie we have mentioned uh, several times tonight, The Dark Half. Yep. 
the dark half was directed by George A. Romero. And uh, just last week we did a Romero tribute episode and we had Gilman Joel here with us for that. And also Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop. So if you haven't heard that one, make sure you check out Horror Movie Podcast episode 123. But um, Joel and Josh, I understand you guys recently revisited the dark half. Yes, I have yeah. not recently. Josh did. I, I was going to. I was going to. I saw it when it came out. I've seen it since then. I have it queued up and ready to go. But since I got Graveyard Shift in in time, that was why I did that as my feature review. Uh, I am actually looking forward to revisiting The Dark Half because I remember really liking it when it came out. It's pretty good. Um, I was I had never seen this one, so I was really excited to give it a watch. It uh, takes place in Ludlow. Maine, but is kind of next door to Castle Rock, Maine. And it's interesting because this has Sheriff Alan Pangborn, who people might recognize as the Ed Harris character from Needful Things. This time he's played by Michael Rooker. So it's fun to see. I love that when we have mm-hmm. the same uh, different actors playing kind of the same character. And that's, that's just a fun connection between these two films. But um it's basically follows Timothy Hutton. He's an author and he is dealing with this outing that he was the guy that has been writing these kind of sleazy novels. He himself is like a professor and known for writing much more um, respectable literature. And so when this, he's outed as being the guy who's been writing this kind of sleazy stuff, he decides, oh, I'm going to bury that character bury this persona and i'm not ever going to write like this again well the alter ego does not like that and emerges and uh he has to deal with it and it's it's interesting it's not great i think it's very i think it's very similar to secret window i was gonna ask you about that next (laughs) very very similar and it's interesting that timothy hutton is in secret window i think that must have been a nod to the dark half by David Kep in terms of casting, but um, yeah, I would actually I would love to do kind of a Dark Half versus Secret Window episode, even and and really explore those connections because they are they are very similar stories. But the you know they they do divert from one another at times, and I personally prefer Secret Window, but I think the Dark Half is a is a great King adaptation. I think the problem with this one is not a lot happens. They, you know, it's it's almost like a '90s thriller like a single white female kind of a thing. Like you're just being terrorized by this other person who is kind of, you know, it's that paranoid thriller trope of you didn't do it, but they're kind of trying to make you look like Mm -hmm. the bad guy and they're, and they're terrorizing your family and loved ones and framing you for their misdeeds. And that's basically the vibe of this movie. And and see, I love that. Yeah. (laughs) I love those movies. (laughs) Well, you might like it. You might like this one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, and, and Joel, do you did you say you remember it very much or not? I remember elements of it. I, I remember uh, the, the I remember a scene involving a cabin and lots of birds. I don't think it's giving anything away since I only vaguely remember the context. Uh, am I remembering that right? Is it birds? Am I is that what I'm remembering? On the Crows, cover, maybe. Yeah, on the cover. Yeah, that's kind have. of the big finale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you need to cut that out, Jake, it's, it's apparently that's what I remember. Um, I, I remember the the element of uh, of um, 
uh, why am I? It's, it's Hutton, right? Isn't that who plays the? Yeah, it's Timothy Hutton. He yeah, plays Timothy. Thad Beaumont, aka and, George Stark. Yeah, and I remember Rooker being in it. Now, you, once you, as soon as you said it, I visualized him in the in the outfit, uh, yeah. the police outfit, and then. The, but really, that's an Amy Madigan. I remember her being in it. She's yeah, she's really one of the highlights. I mean, she doesn't have a lot to do here compared to some of her more memorable roles you know non-horror roles like field of dreams and uncle buck for me but um she's awesome as always i don't there's something about her energy she's not the type of actress that i feel like would get cast much as like the leading man's wife in in our current era but she did a lot in this era and i I don't know. There's something about her that I really. For some reason, she always reminded me of Holly Hunter. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, she's got a bit of a yeah. Holly Hunter esque. Yeah. yeah, and and who doesn't love Michael Rooker? Let's be honest. Come on, man. Yeah. yeah. Rooker also does not get a chance to kind of do, or he doesn't do the Michael Rooker thing here. He's playing it pretty straight, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. He's good. I mean, I you know you know he's good from watching him and everything else, but he does have a certain. Th- thing that he does almost like a Gary Oldman where you're like okay he's gonna go for this and this he plays pretty straight um it's interesting who doesn't though I feel like Timothy Hutton his George Stark half his darker half it feels very Nicolas Cage to me and I'm curious Uh if anyone else will think that it also has a, a couple moments that are borderline Beetlejuice to me where I just think is this is he going for Beetlejuice here is he going for Michael Keaton <laughs> in this moment but um I mean, look, it's not it's not huge, but they're just little moments where I thought that is Nick Cage. That is Michael Keaton. Interesting. Uh, Timothy Hutton's performance. But. Well, I mean, I mean, it's hard to tell how actors are influenced by other performances. So I you may be right, yeah. actually. And and I should just note there. Um, so it's this, based on a Stephen King novel. And as Josh said, you know, kind of from some of his own experience. Right. But but George mm-hmm. Romero adapted the novel into a screenplay, so he wrote the screenplay and also directed. And he did change things. I mean, uh, yeah, it is different from the novel, uh, as I understand, mm-hmm. in terms of the way the dark half is revealed and kind of what it ultimately is. Are I believe at least slightly different from what I read about the novel. Mm-hmm. So that's the dark half from 1993, and now at this point. Let's move into Wolfman Josh's feature review of Needful Things. Castle Rock Entertainment and Stephen King invite you to visit Castle Rock, Maine, a quiet little town whose population has just increased by one. Do you believe in the devil, Father? I guess I have to. We can't have one without the other. What's he look like? What the hell does he look like? May I take this opportunity to welcome you to Castle Rock on the good Lord's behalf? Why not? So where are you from? Ohio. I've been in this business a long time, and I've learned the pleasure of offering my customers what they really need. Needful Things is a 1993 film. It's directed by Fraser C. Heston, who was the son of Charlton Heston. And Frazier didn't really direct too many other notable works. He did direct his dad in a couple of things as Sherlock Holmes and in Treasure Island for television. And he directed Alaska. Uh, I think he's probably best known for directing Needful Things. I also quite enjoyed his documentary about Michael Rockefeller, which we talked about on our Cannibals episode. He directed the Search for Michael Rockefeller documentary. Interesting. Um, 
but uh, this was one of his early works. It's also it's written by W.D. Richter, who people might know as the screenwriter for Big Trouble in Little China. He also wrote the Frank Langella Dracula film and the remake, the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So interesting group of filmmakers at work here. On the cast side, as I mentioned, we have Alan Pangborn, who had been played by Malka Rooker in the dark half here. It's played by Ed Harris. Uh, we've got Bonnie Bedelia's in the film. We've got uh, Max von Sydow as Leland Gaunt. We've got J.T. Walsh in a very memorable turn as Danforth Keaton III, a.k.a. Buster. Um, a lot of great performances here. Amanda Plummer, who nobody was playing crazy like Amanda Plummer at this <laughs> stage in her career. I think between Pulp Fiction and so I married an axe murder and this I she's got my vote for best whack job in early 90s film. But basically it starts out with this awesome sweeping shot of a lighthouse that is kind of reminiscent of Rob Reiner's Castle Rock Entertainment logo. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's meant, you know, it's very evocative of, ooh, we're in Castle Rock, you know. And at some point after Stand By Me, Rob Reiner formed Castle Rock Entertainment, which is just the name of his production company, uh, as kind of an homage to Stephen King, which he himself got the name Castle Rock from the novel Lord of the Flies. And yeah, just it's it's funny. I mean, Castle Rock did go on to produce several of King's movies, but for some reason, because we see that logo so often, at least for me, that's kind of what I think of when I think of Castle Rock is that <laughs> Castle Rock Entertainment logo. So so rewatching Needful Things this week <laughs> and seeing the camera kind of swoop past that lighthouse, I thought, oh, wow, we're, we're actually we're in Castle Rock now. I'm liking this. And basically what you have here is Max von Sydow is moving into Castle Rock as the owner proprietor of Needful Things, which is a, a store where you can go in and basically find anything you want and maybe even what you want most. And he sells people these things. Oftentimes they cannot afford these things. And so he makes them a little trade. He says, you can pay me part cash now, but you're going to owe me a little more. I and would do that if they had a, um, a voodoo doll of Joel Robertson. I would do that. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I thought it was going to be Amy Adams related. Is that uh, the right person? Oh, you mean, you mean, uh, Rachel, uh, McAdams. Rachel McAdams related. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this now. <laughs> so, uh, so I can so, I mean, harm Joel remotely and from afar. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. And then pieces will fly off. So essentially this film is the physicalization of the, the literal interpretation of making a deal with the devil uh, is basically the, the tagline for this film on the poster was buy now pay later. And you have these people making a deal with in the film who was represented as literally kind of the, the Christian Satan as devil in the book. I understand it's not quite explicitly the Christian devil, but still is, you know, this type of an idea of selling your soul that you're getting this thing that you really want. And what he does is he says, you know, the way to pay me back is we're going to have you do a little prank. And he essentially sends them to do something evil to someone else. And by doing that, he turns everyone in Castle Rock against each other to the point where they're, you know, really destroying each other's property, beating each other up and eventually murdering one another. 
and he he comes to basically set fire to the town of Castle Rock, and it's up to Ed Harris as the sheriff to fight against Leland Gaunt and his evil intentions. And so that that's the, the gist of the show. I think the weird thing about this is the way that it's shot. As, as I mentioned with my general impression of a lot of Stephen King films, it has the look and sheen of kind of a made for TV movie, almost mm-hmm. like a, but the weird thing about it is it's, so r-rated in its language it's like one of the Mm. most strong (laughs) language films i've ever heard it's just every other word is the f word and so it's funny because it has this really clean look yeah but then the audio track doesn't fit with the look of the film (laughs) wow something about that's incongruent but anyway it's a fun film it's not i don't think one of my favorites I think it is a little silly, but but it's fun. And I think in the same way that I appreciate one of my favorite uh, King films, The Storm of the Century, it's not it's not cinematically the highest quality. And that's what I would say about Needful Things. It's a little simple in terms of the theme that it's portraying here and and were it not for the language this would actually maybe be an interesting movie to show kids about this kind of idea of selling out your values for material possessions or whatever but mm-hmm. um but yeah it's not really appropriate for kids so <laughs> but what i like about um this story or stories like this i feel like these kind of stories have spawned or been inspired ultimately by the monkey's paw or or movies where like um mm-hmm. or stories where you have like a wish where you can make a wish but you have to pay for that and in theaters right now we have one like that called wish upon but um yeah right. this concept is pretty popular in horror and i mm-hmm. love it and i think what you're talking about there josh speaks to how you know the made for tv look it also kind of reminds me of like a twilight zone episode in a way and um very I, I, much so yeah yeah and there's something i mean good horror i think quote unquote good horror has some kind of weird like a like a moral dilemma or a moral struggle or a breach of morals and i think it's interesting the way stephen king deals with morals a lot in his films and i think this is a good example of one of those yeah there are some there are a couple of really cool horror scenes there's a uh, one scene in particular with amanda plummer and uh valerie brumfield and they are in a mortal, they're in mortal combat, so to speak, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with a butcher knife and a cleaver. And that's an intense scene. I love how that plays out. And I wish there was a little bit more of that in the film. JT Walsh is completely over the top, but awesome in mm-hmm. this movie. I, I really enjoyed him as as Buster. And of course, Max von Sydow is always great. Ed, Ed Harris is always great. Bonnie Bedelia is always great. So it's 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 an excellent cast, and I just feel like it's kind of a middling film, in my opinion. There's some interesting use of music that's a little bit comedic, but um, they use classical music, and it it seems to be the music that Leland Gaunt is listening to. I'm not sure if that's what we're intended to believe, but it underscores these goofy pranks that they're doing to one another with this classical music. They use hall of the mountain King. They use Ave Maria and it's something about how over the top that music is with these weird little pranks is really effective. I really enjoyed Mm. the way they used music in this movie, even though it makes it harder to take it seriously. It's very entertaining. 
So. Interesting. I was just going to say one thing, by the way. Needful Things is supposedly the first novel that Stephen King wrote after becoming sober when he went through his, you know, addiction recovery process. And I, I think it's interesting how, you know, a lot of times an artist is inspired by experiences from their lives. And so, it, you, you know, if you look at the <laughs> what's for sale there and, and like kind of selling your soul to the devil, so to speak, or things that you want badly enough that you're willing to like destroy lives for it. So you can kind of see that addiction theme kind of washing up on shore in this story. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I like about it is that no one in the town actually is innocent. Like Ed Harris has a line where he says, we're all decent people, but you kind of see the underbelly of that. And I feel like that's uh, another trope that we get in movies with the devil, where we see all the people that we assume are good people all have some kind of little sin that they have attached to them that we don't know about all the hidden things that are under, you know, underneath Mm -hmm. the veneer. Yes. So I, I like that element of it as well. Yes. Listeners, as we um, as we proceed forth here, it's 2.20 a.m. for Joel and Dave, and so we're going to let them go, um, even though we hate to lose them. But, um, Joel, I can't believe I don't get to talk about the mangler. Just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> have either of you guys seen Needful Things, though, before I let you Yes, know? I have. I'll be honest with you. I saw it once a while ago, and I don't feel I can rate it, but I have seen it. I <laughs> saw it when it came out, and if I'm going based on my – and I feel like I saw it at least one other time since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, if I was going purely just on the sense of, of how I felt about the movie, I would have probably given it like a 6.5 to a 7. Because mm-hmm. I remember liking it, but to uh, pretty much everything Josh has said, I've been listening and nodding my head because I remember it, it's uneven at points and it, and it definitely drags a little bit at times. Uh, but I do remember enjoying it, thinking the performances were really great. So mm-hmm. if I'm going to give it something, I'd say like a, you know, probably a seven and say rent it. And that's exactly what I say. Seven rental. I do remember the scene that Josh referred to with Amanda Plummer and the other actress. <laughs> and it, it, I remember it being very intense. And what about you, Wolfman? What do you give it again? I'm going to give this one a 5.5, but I am going to say it's a strong rental recommendation if you love Stephen King. Okay. Needful things. Joel Robertson, uh, tell the listeners where they can catch up with you. Catch me at RetroMovieGeek.com, UniversalMonstersCast.com, and uh, wherever fine uh, products are sold. Yes, sir. And um, we're we're grateful that you joined us. And Dr. Shock, uh, where can the listeners find you? Over at uh, DVDInfatuation.com. On Twitter, at DVD Infatuation. Facebook as well. And I also co-host the Universal Monsters cast. And our uh, new uh, Western podcast, We Deal in Lead, uh, which we recorded the first episode uh, Hmm. just the other night. And I think it came out really good. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, so uh, check me out there. All right, guys. Well, thanks. You have a good night. All right, you too, guys. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. We mountain time people, Josh. We don't have the... (laughs) <laughs> the stamina that those East Coasters do. So we're going to kind of cruise down through. But don't worry, we still got one more feature review for, your, for you all. So we're not done yet. But 1993, Josh, The Tommy Knockers, which is a miniseries um, mm-hmm. based on the novel from 87. But The Tommy Knockers, like I said, I think that's one of the last books that my dad read. Did you see that one? I remember seeing that at the time and not really caring for it. Okay. Yeah, it's about a buried UFO that slowly turns local inhabitants into gizmo-building alien mutants. Why they have to be gizmo-building, I'm not sure. But that is a <laughs> that is a three-hour miniseries there, the Tommyknockers TV series. 
1994. Now this this kind of makes me sad right here. To me, uh, many Stephen King um, experts. I mean, people who love Stephen King the most, including the Stephen King fans in my family. Uh, the Stand is mm-hmm. his his masterpiece. Is what people would tell you. Um, right. I don't know if everybody feels that way, but. They have, I think you've got either the stand or the dark tower. The two people are just obsessed with. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the dark tower is a good point. But yeah, the stand. So the miniseries is based on the seventy-eight novel that came out in nineteen ninety-four, and it's about a deadly plague. I haven't seen this in a long time since ninety-four because I, you know, I did see it back then because I was so excited about it coming out. But I remember being really disappointed in it as were the other lovers of the stand, but that's the one about the plague. Did you like it? I like it. I mean, I understand it's not his greatest adaptation, but again, I think there are a lot that aren't that great. I think this was more enjoyable than, than a lot of others, in my opinion, just Mm -hmm. because I like the concept so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is, um, this is a commitment and I, you know, if people want some serious Stephen King entertainment, this is like, I have the runtime down as six hours. So six hour mini series. Um, checked out the stand. Definitely read the book, right? So yeah. And definitely one of the lesser loved, as you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then uh, not horror, but have to mention it also from 94, the Shawshank redemption, which if you go to the IMDB top two fifty of all time, right? Um, doesn't that one just, sit at number one like always on the top 250 i mean i've never been to the imdb top 250 but i know it's one of the most popular movies ever i mean this is one of those movies that when i especially think people who aren't necessarily cinephiles if you say what is the best movie ever a lot of them will come back with the shawshank redemption so right that's and right. not to say that if you like it, you're not sophisticated or something. I just think it's one that a lot of people have seen as well. So. Yeah, it's a fine film. It's a, you know, it's a prison movie, not a horror movie, but, you know, it, it, exceptional film. They have it, yeah, IMDb Top 250, which is rated by IMDb users. Um, that one it has the same exact rating as The Godfather from 1972. Mm. So they put it way up there, but it's good stuff. Not horror, but a must-see. Absolutely, it is. Okay, and in 1995, um, The Langoliers, uh, which is a miniseries based on a novella. Um, I have not seen that, but I have seen that title for years. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I assume so. I also have not seen it, so I can't tell you. But I, yeah, I recognize it. I mostly it's the guy from Quantum Leap is my <laughs> right. recollection. <laughs> yes, and um. Interesting. It's about uh, most of the passengers on an airplane disappear and the remainder land the plane in a mysteriously barren airport. So here again, Stephen King with kind of a, a Twilight Zone kind of slant to his stuff. Okay, and then we get into a little film that we have actually talked about before <laughs> on this podcast. The Mangler, right? Ooh, yeah. From 1995. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen this. I can't remember anything about the Mangler. <laughs> okay, let me just read the premise to people here. This is um a, a Toby Hooper movie, right? Now, now, let me just see here where this ties into Stephen King. So he he wrote a short story, 
which this is adapted from, I guess, or inspired this. In 1972. Uh, right, right. So a laundry folding machine has been possessed by a demon from hell, causing it to develop homicidal tendencies. And the cover art is very interesting. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's a good time. Now, I mean, here's what's crazy about this. If you wanted to watch this on Amazon, for example, it is $10 for standard definition <laughs> to watch it right now, The Mangler. I know of the movie. I have not seen it. I, you know, people talk about it all the time because it's kind of like a weird thing. You know, it's an oddity. There you have it. Um, I'm sure listeners will probably be mad at us for not talking more about that. And maybe Sorry. we maybe we should work that in in the future because it sounds maybe pretty... so. But get in the comments. Look, we really want to hear from you in the comment section. So come and tell us all about your thoughts on every one of these movies. But especially if, if we've missed something, let us know in the comments at HorrorMoviePodcast.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so here's one that I'm not sure about. This sounds more like a crime type of film from... 1995, Dolores Claiborne. It's got your, oh, man. It's got your I girl, love, Kathy Bates. I love Dolores Claiborne. Uh, yeah, it's this is also not a horror movie necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's more in the thriller crime category. But Dolores Claiborne mm-hmm. is an incredible movie. It's really good. Taylor Hackford is not a guy I'm a huge fan of uh, as a director, mm-hmm. but I think this is maybe his best movie, in my opinion, so... Yeah, I'll tell you. So I won't even go into the premise for people, but I will tell you the tagline. And I think this will sell it. Sometimes an accident can be an unhappy woman's best friend. (laughs) Yes. The screenplay is written by Tony Gilroy, who people will know um, from (laughs) the Bourne movies and from the uh, superhero things that he does. So that's right. Yeah. So Kathy Bates, Jennifer Jason Lee, Christopher Plummer. Um, definitely check it, check it out. Yeah, that's got a great cast, actually. So that's from 1995, but not horror, right, Josh? No, but, you know, he also wrote uh, The Devil's Advocate the, the, the next year. And mm-hmm. I think this is similar where it has like a whiff of horror, maybe. But I mean, this is not this is totally very different from The Devil's Advocate. But right. Actually, The Devil's Advocate is very similar to Needful Things. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is, actually. Um, also from 1995, Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. And I, for, forgive me again, as I've reported, I don't remember what the sequels are really about, but... Never seen it. There you go. And in 1996, The Lawnmower Man 2, Beyond Cyberspace. <laughs> Never seen it. Yeah. Keep on moving. 1996, Sometimes They Come Back Again, which is a sequel. I think sequel. I saw that when it came out. But I don't remember anything about it. Yeah. It's a sequel to the one that we mentioned earlier. Sometimes they come back. So that's from 1996. Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know anything to say about that. And then, of course, another Children of the Corn f- for The Gathering. Uh, that's the one I believe that has Naomi Watts in it. I don't remember anything about it. Never seen it. And then finally, that brings us to my feature review of Thinner. From 1996. 
Did you weigh yourself? 297. Billy, you were 297 last week. It takes some time for these diets to work. For Billy Halleck, life is sweet. Baby, I gotta rub the Buddha! Bigger is better. I hate it when you do that. No, you love it. And too much is never enough. Winning. Winning. You gotta stop eating like that. I can't help it, Heidi. All I think about is food. But tonight, all of that will change. You kill my daughter, and I curse you. Sinner. From the best-selling novel by Stephen King comes the new shape of terror. Josh, it's so nice of you to stay awake and stay here um, during this review. I'll try not to put you to sleep. Um, no, I'm <laughs> so, excited. Okay, cool. So a couple little factoids about this. I, I've actually been, I've always been really excited about this story because I remember my dad telling me about it play by play, you know, so it was a book I didn't read, but he told me the whole story. And so for that reason, these stories are kind of sentimental to me. And as you've described, Josh, with your friend on the playground, your tetherball partner, um, it's, there's something, and you, you've done this with Scream too. Like when you talked about Scream to your friends. I'd tell people, yeah, I would, I would tell people the story. That's so much fun. That's a fun way to experience a movie, isn't it? It really is. And, and I, and I think you, you can actually, uh, gain an attachment to, to an, an artwork that way. But anyways, Thinner from 1996, the, on the title card of the movie, it's one of those like John Carpenter's The Thing. This is Stephen King's Thinner. And here's a little factoid that I love. This was released on October 25th, which happens to be the birth date of Horror Movie Podcast. That's when we launched our very first episode, October 25th. So this came out exactly 17 years to the day before the birth of HMP. So that's kind of neat. Another thing about this film, it screened alongside uh, Michael Jackson's short film, Michael Jackson's Ghosts, which was in select theaters. Do you, are you familiar with that, Michael Jackson's Ghosts? You know, I'm not super familiar with that. I remember when it came out, and I revisited it a few years ago, but I don't remember thinking much of it. I was I was looking up Thriller and uh, all things Thriller mm-hmm. online, and I came across Ghosts, and I watched it. But yeah, no, no real recollection of it. That actually makes me want to look it up right now. So I think after we wrap, I'm going to watch Michael Jackson's Ghosts. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah, it's because... Yeah, I'm a Michael Jackson fan, actually, and I, I love Thriller, like you, so we got to track down that documentary of the making of Thriller. I, I forget. Was it? I, I, were, own, I own it. Okay. I own it. That's right. Yeah, yeah I, I remember somebody on our network was obsessed with that. And That's me. It must be you. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> that makes perfect sense now. Anyways. It's one of the few, it's one of just a couple of things that made me want to be a filmmaker. It's like in the top two or three things that made me want to go into filmmaking. So is that something that people can order or how, how did you get it? Um, so it was on VHS when I was a kid, I used to rent it every time I'd go to the video store <laughs> when at a certain age, I would get Condor man and the making of thriller. Like every time <laughs> Condor man over and over again. <laughs> oh my goodness. I think I remember Condor man. Yeah. From 1981 with Michael Crawford, right? Is that the mm-hmm. one? It's like a Disney version of a kid's, it's like a mix between James Bond and a superhero movie for kids, uh, you know, by Disney. Oh, Josh, see, I know why we're friends now. I mean, I really understand (laughs) it with things like Condor Man. Oh, man. That is so great. Okay, so 
so back to the making of thriller sorry just really quick is uh now available on a a couple of the michael jackson cd collections they actually comes the one i bought is like the gold collection or something but it comes with a bonus disc which is the dvd with the making of thriller on it oh excellent okay there you go and josh highly recommends that now, um, a thinner here was adapted from a 1984 novel. I think it's interesting that it took what, like, uh, 12 years to get this made mm-hmm. into a film. Um, it was published under. <laughs> they had done the good ones at that time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, see, I sense that you were very down on thinner. Um, is that true? Are you are you, you not a fan? Correct. <laughs> you sense correct. Okay, and and I and I bet I know why, but um, we'll get into that. Um, right. This was published under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. We've talked about that already. Now, a couple things I want to appreciate. I believe it was this way on the book cover, as I recall. It's this way on the DVD cover. If you look at the title, thinner, um, it's amazing. Like, there's some really good uh, font art there, where the letters are fat, and then as it goes left to right the letters get thinner and thinner, which is actually kind of the premise where you've got this obese attorney who um, doesn't have a ton of scruples. He um, (laughs) really upsets this uh, gypsy who puts a curse on him where he rapidly and uncontrollably loses weight and it doesn't stop losing weight. And that's kind of the premise. So, like, you know, getting thinner, I, I love how they actually depict that in the actual look of the title. Now, what really bugs me a lot, if you look at the DVD cover, it looks kind of like this skull face. And there is no imagery in the film like that. And that really right. bug. I hate stuff like that. <laughs> it, it ticks me off because you, you look forward to seeing that image. I mean, if they're going to spoil an image for you, I mean, you're waiting for it and it never happens. So it misrepresents it. Anyway, this is a body horror film that kind of be in the subgenre. Um, it's directed by Tom Holland and no, yeah. not Spider-Man. But you, <laughs> but you'll know. Horror icon, man. Yeah, Tom he, Holland. He was not even born yet back then. No, um, but you'll still know him because he was the writer director of like Fright Night, Child's Play. Oh yeah, man, he's the good Tom Holland. That <laughs> and you know what this this Tom Holland, he's still active. I mean, he's not the actor either. Who are the actors? Also awesome. Not the not the Spider Man actor, but the the crazy creepy actor. Right. Right. Um, no, yeah, this Tom Holland is my favorite. He's so cool, and he's really active online right now. He's very old, but he he's very active on Twitter. He's got a blog, and he does like new like horror news, like almost Ooh. like a bloody disgusting kind of thing, you know. I mean, he Neat. really he's really involved in the horror community. He does Q and A's on his blog, and he's a super cool guy. Everybody, shout him out, give him some love on uh, social media. That sounds great. Um, yeah, don't tell him that I didn't like this movie. <laughs> yeah, don't tell him it's a secret. But but um, yeah. but I liked it. You could you can tell him that. But so night we love Child's plays. You know, a classic. Not my cup of tea necessarily, but it's good. The, the guy is a horror icon. Tells from the crypt. I mean, he knows what's up. He he totally does. And in fact, he was the writer of the Initiation of Sarah from 1978, which is basically like a Carrie ripoff. Just two years later. Mm-hmm. The Beast yeah. Within, Psycho 2. He wrote Psycho 2, which I know, like, 
Joel is over the moon about that one. A lot of people love that one. So is Dave. Dave thinks it's arguably as good as the first one. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, here's a little bit of eerie trivia. Now, oh, and sorry, go I got to say, Class of 1984, not a horror movie, but one of the all-time best films with punks in cinema. So mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. So you want some eerie trivia. Now, uh, as usual, Wolfman, we can only take the IMDb trivia with a grain of salt. So this might not be true, but it says, while in production, production for thinner here, writer-director Tom Holland was stricken with Bell's palsy, which is a virus that paralyzed half his face. Mm. Now, that's very interesting that that, that that would happen during this film where, you know, people are getting afflicted with things that affect their body in a deteriorating way. That's just ironic or something. Anyways, um, this film, it actually took, I mentioned it took like 12 years, right? Well, Tom Holland, I guess, must have been passionate about this. He spent like six years developing it. It went through at least 10 rewrites. And I think one reason that, you know, they were halting production on it is the executives were afraid that the public would look at the protagonist's plight because he loses weight pretty rapidly and um, just tie it unfavorably to the AIDS epidemic. So that's the story on that, supposedly. And I, I got a couple of different figures on the budget, Josh. Not that people care about this that much, but I got between $8.5 million to $17 million, somewhere in there. But as we've stated many times, the look of this film, it kind of, it's like, it has that made-for-TV look. It actually feels like a Goosebumps movie with the score and everything. I mean, it reminds me of Creepshow 2 a little bit, and that's another thing I'm not super fond of. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. And in fact, yeah, since you brought that up, I mean, I, I think we, yeah, we should definitely make this clear to people. I mean, this has some, uh, you know, very, what's the way? I mean, it's a it's offensive type of stereotypes. It promotes um, <laughs> very negative stereotypes so like of, of gypsies. Yeah, and, and, Roma is what actually they they're preferred. Okay, I didn't know yeah. that. So you learn something new every day. Roma, and then also of um of Italian Americans, right? Like they have yeah. it has like a a mafia type crime feel, and and that's what this is. I mean, this also is it's interesting because it's a body horror film blended with like um, later on the film kind of becomes this mafia crime flick. Which is interesting. So anyways, as with many Stephen King stories, this is rooted somewhat in his his own life. Um, At one point, he weighed like over 200 pounds and his doctor was on his case to lose weight and stop smoking. And and so he did that, but he was very irritated that, you know, people were trying to force him to lose weight. Right. You know, and, and that made him start thinking, you know, what if someone, you know, forced to lose weight and then they weren't able to stop losing weight and that kind of got right. this this whole idea spawning in his mind um this is rated r for horror violence gore language and sexuality it's got it's like an hour and a half long it was only in theaters for four weeks and um i, I don't know when's the last time you saw this uh i'm not sure if i ever saw it on video i saw it in theaters when it came out okay. i was super disappointed and, and and yeah i did find it offensive but more honestly i just didn't like it i just thought it was a big letdown in terms of narrative it just felt like 
deflated after watching it, much like the character does, I suppose. Yeah, you were emaciated after <laughs> yes. watching it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it has that you know, you know how we talk about that eighties nostalgia, that charm to it. It there's something about it that I really like that appeals to me. And and maybe it is that whole Twilight Zone feel. Like um like I love Day of the what is it called? Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. And that's a made for TV uh-huh. horror movie, but you, you uh-huh. know, there, there's just something about those movies. I can't, it, and I can't even put my finger on it and articulate it, but people who love them know what I mean. Um, the performances in this Josh are not good. I mean, they're really not, there are some really aw- awkward <laughs> moments. That's like, wow, that was not directed. Well, I would have like gone a different direction with that. Right. Um, like there's one moment when like um this this wife is describing her husband's deteriorating condition because other people are cursed as well with various conditions and I think it was supposed to be really creepy kind of along the lines of um the way Quint's story about the USS Indianapolis is creepy about the you know so the way she's describing her husband but her performance totally undermines it so I don't love that um. Yeah. There, there are some pretty quotable quotes in this that are kind of hilarious. There's an, um, there's a theme again. We, we are getting into this betrayal theme. <laughs> this is a little bit different from the book. People would argue, but there's this pretty apparent like extramarital affair, you know, adultery theme in this book. Yeah. And we've talked about how Stephen King, you know there's something about the morality of that that he he goes after it seems in his films mm-hmm. we talked about the awful stereotypes there are like three different people who are cursed in this and we see how it affects them and at one point we see these little creepy dolls that are like miniatures of them and mm-hmm. the dolls actually resemble <laughs> like dead on i mean they they did a fantastic job on those dolls making them look like the real people speaking of um yeah those are cool yeah yeah i mean i was impressed with that like so speaking of like little dolls of joel robertson um (laughs) (laughs) but but once you see you know once you see uh, like uh, for example there's a character who has a scaly lizard-like deterioration of his skin you see the doll and you're like okay that kind of looks creepy and then you see it on him and and you know his full adult form, he's all grown up on the person. And it's like, it looked good on the little doll, on the person. It looks exactly the same, but it doesn't work <laughs> on the person. <laughs> so anyway, That's this hilarious. thing, I liked it halfway through about the 45 to 50 minute mark. It starts lagging. It goes off course. It gets really weird. Um, they have some kind of dated uh little little ads and hit like you do you remember how the big thing in the 90s was that that slogan why ask why you know do you remember that yeah that's right. in this and they talk about buffering <laughs> which i haven't heard that name buffering <laughs> in so long um anyways <clears throat> i do like the you know the uh, mafia type character in this i think that's kind of cool and where the movie goes i mean they 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 changed the ending a little bit and a lot of people complained about that. But honestly, 
this is one of those endings that I don't think people loved all along. I've always loved how dark this film is. I mean, how dark the story is in general, but that's kind of cool. Um, a couple little factoids, and I'm going to rate this sucker and call it a night for us. Uh, the, so the guy who plays the judge in this, he also played a judge in Shawshank Redemption. That's kind of cool, right? Josh is like, not really. Yeah. Not really. No, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> he loves it. Um, let me see if there's anything else that's worth even talking about. Um, supposedly, you know, the lead actor actually lost, um, you know, some weight for this and you can tell. And I think that's really all I want to talk about on this. So my rating, I'm going to come in at like a a 5.5 out of 10 and I'd call it a rental. You don't have to rush out or anything. Just, just a standard rental. But you know, the story is it has a creepy element to it. Um, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up finally, there is a beautiful, beautiful actress in this. She is incredible to me. It's Carrie War. She plays Gina Lemke. And um, she is just striking and stunning. And you know how when you see a film that's like over 20 years old, and then you look up their IMDb picture and they've changed quite a bit because they're 20 years older. She yeah. still looks beautiful. And um, she's a lovely addition to the film. I really like her in the film. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I understand why, why it's definitely offensive, Josh, but in terms of horror film, I think it's, it's okay. So that's, I just think it's not great even as a movie. Now, again, I haven't seen it since it came out and maybe right after, if I saw it on VHS as well, I definitely saw it in the theater. Mm -hmm. I would be tempted to give it a three if I were to rate it, but I will not rate it (laughs) since I haven't seen it for so long. Okay. Um, I did want to just add this little fact that I know we've talked around the Richard Bachman thing quite a bit, but mm-hmm. just to be very clear, this was the last release of a Richard Bachman novel because he was outed before misery came out. Um, and then funnily enough, Richard Bachman released the regulators in 1996, kind of around the time of uh, this film coming out. So it was weird. Something that he, he took a break Richard Bachman between 90, 84 and, and 96 and uh, his release kind of coincided with this movie. So that, that's kind of fun. Um, There is, if you look at the thinner book jacket, there is a photograph of another guy who is <laughs> purported to be Richard Bachman. Yes. It's in fact, a guy named Richard Manuel, uh, the insurance agent of Kirby McCauley, who was King's literary agent. And all of this also kind of plays out in the dark half. That's with there being hilarious. the fake photo and everything. That's so interesting. The things that uh, people do to entertain themselves, huh, Josh? Yeah. It's kind of weird. Okay, and before we wrap it up for the night, I believe we have some uh, listener feedback. They, they want to weigh in on some of our Stephen King coverage, right? Yeah, we just put a tweet out on Horror Movie Cast on Twitter. I just said uh, we begin part one of our Stephen King coverage, 1976 to 1996. Tomorrow night, reply with your favorite adaptation here. We got quite a few replies, about 32. Some of those were from the same people. Uh, I will just tell you what some of them said. David Dunbar, one of our good friends, David from the UK, he says, stand by me. (laughs) Is his favorite. Horror-wise, he would say The Shining, Misery, and The Mist. Don't know any of the adaptations trump the source material for me, though. And that was a common theme. They really didn't feel like any of the adaptations were quite as good as 
the original books. Right. David says, I have a soft spot for some of the lesser acclaimed stuff too. Thinner, The Night Flyer, It, Rose Red, and 1408 are all really fun. Sal Roma says, if It ended at the conclusion of the first half, it'd be one of King's best adaptations. Ian West says, I love The Shining more than most things in life, but it is, in fact, a poor adaptation of its source material. I'll pick De Palma's Carrie and Carpenter's Christine and The Dead Zone. Mm. Dark Mark says, it's been a while, but I remember liking 1408. And David responds to Mark. He says, most folks seem to hate it, but I think it's pretty effectively creepy. It's no masterpiece, but I think it's fun for what it is. I, I love 1408. And hopefully we're going to have the screenwriter 1408, Matt Greenberg, on the next episode as well. The Gray Man, Greg Bench, says, mm-hmm. Graveyard Shift is horrible. And Eric says, Dead Zone, Christine, Carrie, Cujo, in no particular order, Creepshow is a fave, but not an adaptation. So those guys are sticklers, and they caught me on my wording of the tweet. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, busted. Yeah, Andred the Blind says, hard pick, but probably Christine, followed by Misery and The Shining. Best are non-horror, though. Shawshank, Stand By Me, and The Green Mile. Mm-hmm. Yes. Greg says, Dead Zone, Pet Cemetery, Carrie, Stand By Me, Shawshank Redemption are all classics. The Shining is phenomenal. Christine is my personal fave just for the love of automobiles and John Carpenter. <laughs> Red Cap Jack says Salem's Lot, Silver Bullet, Pet Cemetery, and maybe surprisingly Graveyard Shift. So, yeah. hey, there's the Graveyard Shift lover in the audience. Yeah. Justin Thorngard says Stand By Me and Shawshank for good, Pet Cemetery and Silver Bullet for stinky. So he does not like those. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Sal Roma says the shining and misery stand out the most to me. And Kristen McKenzie chimed in that Kathy Bates is incredible in that movie. Lil Lowey says the dead zone. I always cry at the end. Mm-hmm. Ashley says probably a typical answer, but I just genuinely enjoy Carrie. I did enjoy the book more. Couldn't put it down, but the film held up. And Pet Cemetery continues to F me up to this very day. Excuse my language. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Uh, not says the Green Mile. Darabont always seems to get it right. We'll talk about that probably next time as a non-horror. Mm-hmm. Some people will say in must see, but I, I don't know if I would agree with that. Well, we'll talk about that next time. The Shining 1980, even if King doesn't like it, says Dave Z. He also says, then Pet Cemetery, Misery, and the original Carrie. Hugh Lloyd says, Salem's Lot is a great film. Stand By Me is simply majestic. It until the end. Misery is outstanding. Carrie and the Dead Zone, favorites too. Nice. That's Hugh Lloyd from the Undead Wookiee podcast. Mm-hmm. Classics aside, Silver Bullet was a childhood favorite. Creepshow 1 and 2, I revisit frequently, says Colin Campbell. Real deal Colin on Twitter from Scotland. Eric Gilliland says the dead zone. Mm-hmm. Charles Azar says the stand Jay surprise. Nice. Well, great story. Paul Drake says the shining Christine and the mist and Paul Drake may be our biggest Stephen King fan in the audience. I know we have several, but I follow Paul on Instagram and most of his posts seem to be Stephen King book related. So, okay. <laughs> Jacob and tab from the test pattern show say we really like maximum overdrive. That movie was a lot of fun. 
Short story was so much darker in tone, but the film was fun. Mm-hmm. It is fun. Coleman Wiederhold says the shining exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Jonathan Watkins says stand by me in misery. Liana Keast says as far as classics go, I'm going to have to go with misery and Carrie for modern adaptations. Love in 2263 absolutely killed it. In my opinion, Joel agrees with here. I have not seen it yet, but I, I tend to like JJ Abrams. Hmm. Kubrick's The Shining. Sorry, Stephen. The film is a masterpiece, albeit an unfaithful one. Right. And Don't Sleep on 112263. Great TV series. That's from DJ Godzilla. Thank you. Wes Jones says, this probably doesn't count, but Kubrick's The Shining. Easily one of my favorite films of all time. It counts, Wesley. Oh, definitely. Lady Phantom says, Cujo and the Green Mile. That's uh, Bill Shetty's co-host over on horror on the go lady phantom mm, shout out to those guys yeah sean taylor says green mile and shawshank are such strong movies hard to beat either since this is horror it miniseries is my favorite than the shining so thank you sean nice an it supporter <laughs> Mackenzie lambert says dead zone no question I, I, I like the dead zone i didn't think i said anything about it but it, i think christopher walken is incredible in that yeah, definitely. Christian Church says Salem's Lot 79, It 90, both for TV by Toby Hooper and Tommy Lee Wallace, respectively. So that's great. Finders Peepers, a.k.a. Thumbs of Clay on Twitter, says <laughs> Shawshank and Green Mile have mighty performances. They just don't live up to Bronson Pinoche's multi-layered role in the Langoliers. I feel like that's mm. a joke. well his twitter account is something to behold he's very entertaining to follow i'll just i'll put it like that he's a frequent tweeter at uh movie cast weekly right Uh, oh yeah he's he's got all kinds of things to say and (laughs) he just recently started following horror movie cast but i have noticed him tweeting at you quite a bit so yeah he's cool he's cool I'm, i'm glad his acerbic writing hasn't targeted us yet so we are we are safe so far. Thank you, Thumbs of Clay. We appreciate it. <laughs> Leave your thoughts on the Langoliers in the show notes at horrormoviepodcast.com. And I believe that is it. That is all of the audience feedback. So thank you guys all for sharing your favorites. Mm-hmm. And again, please let us know what we missed or what we got wrong or what we got right at horrormoviepodcast.com. And I want to make sure that the horror listeners here of Horror Movie Podcast are aware that on our special features feed, which is part of the Movie Podcast Network, that is our subscription Patreon feed, we are actually releasing an episode on August 1st about our top 10 all-time favorite movie posters. Now, I just want you to know that Jay of the Dead here, I will be giving you the top 10 all-time favorite horror movie posters, and we may actually have more. I know that Dr. Shock, Wolfman Josh, and Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop, they're all planning to be there with me, and I'm not 100% certain if they're doing strictly horror only or a blend of all genres. I'm certain they'll probably have some horror in there at the very least, but my top 10 will be strictly horror movie posters, and so that's on August 1st. 2017 at moviepodcast.network you can subscribe by clicking on the the right hand side panel there or at horrormoviepodcast.com we've got the button there too where you can go to our patreon page 
You can subscribe and support our network for a very, very low price, and you will get access to this premium content. We think you'll have a blast, and we hope that you'll join us. Okay, well, this has been a lot of fun. I can't wait to talk about more Stephen King adaptations. Actually, I think some of my more favorite adaptations are going to be in the second show. So mm-hmm. that, that should be fun to go over. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to our listener, Bonnie. I know um, she sent us this a while ago, but Jay, you and I have not been able to link up in quite a while. <laughs> yeah. And I just recently got this beautiful piece of artwork, the Bonnie made for us me us at yes uh from the burbs and it is just incredible this is it's kind of the nightmare sequence from the burbs and this is her take on it and it is just so well done the title of the piece is satan is good satan is our pal which is one of my favorite lines from the burbs it's uh when ray is chanting and his good friend tells them, Ray, once they get in here, it's over, pal. <laughs> uh, I love that part. Yeah, yeah she, she is fantastically talented. There is oh no doubt about it. It's incredible. She's so talented. So please follow her on Twitter. I just realized I don't know how to pronounce her last name. It's at B Bazel Art or B Basel Art. I'm not sure what the pronunciation is, but it's B B O Z E L L. ART. She's on Twitter and Instagram under that same name. And the reason I'm telling you to follow her is not only does she post her cool artwork, but you can go to her Etsy shop and buy this very piece as well as some other just awesome horror pieces. She's such a great artist. I I just love her work. She was the one that had worked at the LACMA during the Guillermo del Toro exhibit. Mm -hmm. And she gave us some shouts out and she is the one that we have the photos of her delivering her art to Guillermo del Toro that she did for him personally. Just anyway, really cool lady. And we love having her as a listener. So thank you so much. Incredibly generous. Um, can't say enough about it. Mm-hmm. Thank you to our other listeners who have given us many kind gifts over the last year. I just got all of them from Jay for the first time. So. <laughs> it's <laughs> not, awesome. but don't be mad at me for that. Uh, there are lots of things they can be mad at me at for legitimately. Oh, no. But for that, we, we just, you and I never get to see each other. It's weird. No, no absolutely. Yeah. Um, Monsters by Design. We finally got those postcards. Totally awesome. Nosferatu poster just blows my mind. Armored Foes, awesome stickers. Got my hands on those. So we really appreciate all of our listeners. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your talent with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to mention that I'm a huge Clue fan. I've I've mentioned that on the show before. It's a whodunit <laughs> comedy. Yes, I think it's it's a little bit spooky. Honestly, it kind of freaks me out sometimes. I love it. It's one of my favorite movies to watch along with the Burbs. And for the very first time, there is a director's commentary to Clue. What happened was a guy who was just a big Clue fan decided you know what, why is there not a commentary to this? So he called up the director. He, he was able to <laughs> figure out, well, he, he emailed him. He, he figured out his email address just by trial and error, trying to figure out. Know, he basically internet stalked him and figured out his email address, emailed him and said, hey, I will come to you wherever you are. I want to record an audio commentary for Clue with you. He said, yes. Jonathan Lynn said, yes, I'm going to be in LA soon. We'll hook up and do it. This guy rented out a studio 
for the you know for a couple hours they went in they recorded the clue commentary together he sat on it for about a year because he wasn't sure how he was going to distribute it to the biggest possible audience and then he eventually got kevin smith to release it as a podcast episode so and you know kevin smith is really wow popular podcaster mm-hmm. the filmmaker and he's got a lot of followers so kevin smith actually released this just last month in his podcast feed, the feature commentary for clue. I just thought I would let people know. I want to let as many people know about that as possible. Cause I love that movie so much. So that guy, I'm sorry. I don't have your name in front of me. Super cool guy. I've been in touch with him on Twitter, but he turns out is a screenwriter and he wrote for a show that has since been canceled that I started watching because I heard him talking about clue and it sounded so fascinating. That show is another who done it with paranormal stuff. So it could t- potentially be considered horror. Um, it's called Houdini and Doyle. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle in real life were friends and they both shared an interest in the paranormal. And, and both of them at one time were kind of believers. Houdini later became a skeptic and a debunker of these guys doing seances and stuff like that. So what this film, the TV show was the series was um, kind of an imagined relationship that where these guys become a Holmes and Watson on their own and go out and investigate paranormal crimes, almost like an X-Files, like a Mulder and Scully nice. and Arthur Conan Doyle being the believer in the paranormal and Harry Houdini being the skeptic and they solve crimes together. And it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's definitely has a TV feel. It's not super cinematic. I'd much rather see Guy Ritchie take on like this type of world, but yeah, uh, so it was a lot of fun. I've only watched the first two episodes, but I would recommend if you like kind of TV whodunits with a paranormal twist, check out Houdini and Doyle from the wonderful man whose name I don't know who did. <laughs> <laughs> the clue commentary with Jonathan Lynn. Okay. That's excellent. Thanks for letting me know about that. I'm definitely going to um, go download that because Kevin Smith's okay. podcast is free, right? That commentary is free. Yeah. The, the commentary is free. It's on SoundCloud and iTunes and a lot of other places. Let me just say his name because I feel terrible that I didn't have it. His name is Joshua Brandon, a, a fellow Josh, and I didn't have his name in front of me. So okay. thank you, Joshua Brandon. You've done the world a service with both Houdini and Doyle and the clue commentary. That is excellent. All right. Um, did you have anything else you want to say? Because I had a few things as well, even a voicemail I wanted to slip in there. You know what? I think that's going to do it for me on this episode. You can find me at universalmonsterscast.com, moviestreamcast.com, and at social media (laughs) at Icarus Arts. Okay, excellent. And uh, real quick, before I go into my final things I want to say, I do have a voicemail response from uh, Joel Robertson's cohort (laughs) over there on Retro Movie Geek and our dear friend Peter, the Viking. Right. He, yeah, he he actually. So speaking of this reminds me a lot of your clue commentary, because this is this is like interesting stuff that I think is genuinely useful to listeners. So I hope people are still listening at this point in the show, because this is kind of cool. If you were intrigued or interested in Dr. Shock's review of my little eye from like a couple of shows ago, it was it was episode one twenty one. I believe um 
Peter had some really good insight and a recommendation pertaining to that film. So I'm just going to play that real fast. Hey, guys. Uh, Peter from uh, Retro Movie Geek Podcast here. I just finished listening to uh, uh, Dave's review of My Little Eye on episode 121. Uh, I seem to remember that was a cool little flick when I watched it way back. Uh, interesting tidbit, though. Uh, the DVD I have has two... See, I'm not at home, so I can check this. I'm, I'm still out walking. Uh, two commentary tracks. One is uh, kind of like a regular commentary track, you know, with uh, uh, Mark Evans and a couple of others, I think. But the interesting commentary is the second one, which is kind of integrated with the movie because uh, you get to hear kind of like the technicians behind the company who's running the house. Like if something interesting, go, oh, go to camera two and go to camera three and stuff like that. So that kind of heightened the experience watching the movie. So if people have that uh, commentary, I recommend listening to that while watching the movie. It'll give a whole new dimension to it. So there, just thought I'd mention it. Okay, have a great time and keep it up and uh, talk to you soon. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. So that was interesting to me, Josh, because it sounded like um, that film was okay, you know, when Doc reviewed it. But if mm-hmm. you listen to it this way, you know, and you have that additional uh, commentary from the people who are supposedly, you know, filming this house or whatever, he said it seems to enhance the experience. So there you go. Cool. I also just wanted to give a shout out to Multisha Adams on Twitter. She was one of our contest winners previously. She's in the UK as well. And um, she just tweeted that My Little Eye was one of the first horror movies she ever saw. So that's kind of cool. Oh, wow. Younger younger listener. But um, yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is great. And um, with all our D- Dark Tower talk, we just want to make sure you're aware that uh, Movie Podcast Network... We have a subscription feed. As you know, it's called our special features feed. And for you Dark Tower fans, um, those who have read the, the book series, um, there is a, a one of those bonus episodes coming of the Dark Tower series dis- discussed by those who have read the books. <laughs> those who have not, like me, are not permitted to be there. So um, I, I think that's going to be good. I'm excited about that. We have a couple of really enthusiastic people on the network. I know Matroid and Cartoon Joe are going to be involved. And um, I'm not sure who else. But that ought to be good if you want to, you know, hear what they have to say about it. Also, there's another little special features episode that uh, Wolfman Josh is putting together that's uh, kind of a a companion piece (laughs) to our, our shark attack episode. Yes. (laughs) Jay and I ended up going to see Shark Week at the Movies. As promised. (laughs) Yes, with our little ones. And we did uh, about 22 minutes of coverage in the lobby of the movie theater after the screening. And then I'm actually going to tack on the end of that bonus uh, the longer version of Keone Bothorp's story from... Horror Movie Podcast episode 122 for those who enjoyed that story and it seemed like I've only heard positive feedback on it. I think people were kind of blown away by it, which I'm yes. glad. I, I, I liked it as well. Um, I That was the shorter version. That was about 15 minutes. This is a 30 minute version of that. I put all the juiciest stuff in there, but this is more details about um, 
what happened and the sh- and sharks in general. He goes into more depth about uh, kind of shark um, behavior and things like that. So it's it's pretty interesting. Um, that will be just a bonus for our patrons. It's going to be on the end of our Shark Week at the Movies review. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fun little one. And um, otherwise, I just hope people will check out the rest of the Movie Podcast Network. You can, uh, we have like, getting to be like eight or nine shows now that, you know, if you're a movie person, you love the cinema, uh, then then we hope you'll take a look at it. My, my little sister podcast project is Movie Podcast Weekly. A bunch of goofballs over there, um, but it's fun. We review the new stuff that's in theaters. All right, Josh. So as we take it home here with all the the usual stuff, we um, invite people to leave their comments, as we've said many times tonight in episode 124 or anywhere at our website at horrormoviepodcast.com. You can also email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail uh, like Peter did at 801-382-8789. And you can find all our episodes, including the weekly Horror Movie Podcast archive and Horror Metropolis at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes and follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. We also want to thank Kagan Breitenbach for his classical reworking of Fred's original theme. You can find more of Kagan's work at kaganbreitenbach.com. We'll have both of those linked in the show notes. And I think that's it for episode 124. We thank you for listening and join us again for part two of our Stephen King and Dark Tower review on Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Horror Movie Podcast.